Hi, this is Tuesday night from A Nightmare on Elm Street 4, and you are listening to Rants from the Black Lodge Podcast. Recording live from the Black Lodge, it's me, the free will burning, head turning, ass kicking, machismo dripping, master podcast and mouthpiece of the Southeast, Brandon A. Lane, bringing you a new edition of the Rants from the Black Lodge podcast. Roses are red, violets are blue, sugar is sweet, but no one is sweeter than the lady you heard at the top of this podcast, star of A Nightmare on Street 4. The lovely and very talented Tuesday Night. Now, by this point, I'm assuming that Tuesday is probably tired of me messaging her, um, hounding her for this intro, but I, I can't thank her enough. She took time out of her busy schedule to be kind enough to do this for us, so the least I can do for her is give her a shout-out. So I invite all of our listeners out there in the Rant Army to go and check her out on social media. You can find her on Twitter, at Night Twos. I'm going to spell that out just so there's no confusion. K-N-I-G-H-T-T-U-E-S, that's simple enough. Also find her at TuesdayNight.com. We're inducting you as an honorary member of the Rant Army. But you're not the only one. So in addition to a full-length running commentary track for A Nightmare on Elm Street 4, The Dream Master, we actually had an opportunity to sit down with the man who I now consider to be the actual Dream Master, working behind the scenes to bring all those nightmares to your memories iconic production designer Mick Strawn. Mick and I have become a bit of friends. And so, Mick, I want to give a shout-out to you for being nice enough to do this podcast by uh, shedding a little light on his podcast. It's called Dream Warrior Review. Uh, they do film discussions. They're nice, short-to-the-point episodes, 20, 30 minutes. They're perfect for me. I can pop them in and listen to them on my way to work, and I have done that constantly ever since discovering it. So you can find them on Podbean, YouTube, Stitcher, iTunes, Google Play, basically all the places this podcast is available, which, of course, is is iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Music, Spotify, Podbean, Player FM, of course, at our homepage at JuicyKruger.com, and don't forget to follow us at Rants Black Lodge. Well, let's uh, get some messages from our sponsors, and when we return, we'll be having a nice long discussion with our new friend, Mixtron. Stay tuned, everybody. Next Generation Wrestling brings some of the most talked about and star-studded professional wrestlers from around the world. Based out of East Tennessee, NGW is becoming one of the most sought-after independent wrestling promotions in the past four years. Witness NGW Live or on demand on the High Spots Wrestling Network streaming app. Follow us on social media platforms at NextGenTN. All right, Rand Army, making his debut into the Black Lodge, we have a man whose body of work includes such films as Candyman, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3, Blade, and, of course, the film we are spotlighting here tonight, A Nightmare on Elm Street 4, The Dream Master. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, I give you the man, the myth, the legend, all rolled into one, Mr. Mick Strawn. Thank you so much, Mick, <laughs> for taking time out of your busy schedule to visit us here with the Rants from the Black Lodge podcast. Well, there you go. Here, you know, no matter... Where you go, there you are. Well, <laughs> right out of the gate, uh, and I, I don't mean this in any sort of a, a demeaning way, but 
what the hell does a production designer do? Oh, uh, but you know what? <laughs> That's a, everybody that's a everybody seems to know what a director does and an editor, editor does, and it seems that uh, production design is uh, sort of the redheaded stepchild as far as uh, what people recognize uh, film duties. So if you want to explain well, what you do. Uh, you know, it, it's got a lot of different meanings um, because depending on, depending on the film, uh, a production designer kind of does different things, but the production designer is, is – uh, is involved primarily in the overall look of a film. And uh, I, I don't know how to describe that to you other than me personally. Uh, I get, I design the sets. I mean, that's the common, the most common thing that you could equate it with is uh, an art director style. Uh, in other words, you, uh, you, you design the sets, but uh, a production designer kind of goes over that in that, you know, his purview is is almost anything that he wants on a film, or not that he wants, but what a film needs. Um, it's just uh, the look of it. I mean, I, I can get involved in, have, have gotten involved on films uh, in making the, the sets, uh, getting an eye for the costumes, and making sure everything comes into a cohesive... Uh, a cohesive look, and then protecting that look through the length of the film. Um, in other words, uh, I would have discussions with with the director as the film goes along, because it's my job to make sure that the film looks like w- what my job was uh, to look like what I wanted all the way along, and, and to defend that against the uh, vicissitudes of. Uh, Filmmaking. <laughs> so you're sort of like you're the one who is keeping the theme uh, from from a visual standpoint. Is that fair to say? Exactly. Well, let me give you an example because Nightmare on Elm Street Four is the perfect example of it. Um, Nightmare on Elm Street Four had and some of these sets were like on locations and were built and manipulated and all that manipulation is mine. The thing is, is everything that you see is not accidental. I mean, it's, it's not like it just happens. It's like it's intentional all the way down the line. If you were considering, say, uh, we want to make the Elm Street house look, then it's m- my job to give you an idea and then make sure the exterior location looks like the interior of it Once uh, to make sure that these have all come together. And I'll give you an example in Nightmare on Elm Street 4, the location wasn't because we wanted a completely exaggerated Nightmare on Elm Street house, and we couldn't do it at the original location, so we built the Elm Street house again, the exterior as well as the interior. That's incredible. Now, when you're in that position of having to recreate something from a previous movie, what? Uh, how do you go about that? Like, as far as you have, like, the, the specs that were used before, do you have to, like just uh, kind of wing it from just watching the film and making those comparisons? How do you go about that? Well, I, I think winging it is a, <laughs> you know, uh, you're not winging it as much as you're reinventing it. Okay. And, and and the thing is, is on the nightmares, everybody, uh, every director, every production designer and so forth, were all uh, hired to give it a, a new look. 
each time, right? A, a look that goes with that particular set of visions for it. We can even go go to the the effects uh, of it. I mean, I was really involved with effects because I was I worked in uh, designing effects as well as in, worked in in designing sets. What what I wanted, we wanted to go really big. Like Nightmare on Street wasn't a, a, a subtlety. I can certainly give you, I can give you a great story as to, now, because I actually designed three also, and then moved to uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 4. I give you an example of what a production designer does that you don't know about. Uh, oh, please do. It, I designed the uh, uh, the junkyard, okay? Oh, love it. And what we did, love it. What we did is we literally went in and we bought all the cars in a junkyard. And I built a model uh, that had uh, 290-something cars in the model. And we bought cars and then cleared a lot that was owned by the same junkyard next door. And we cleared that lot and then placed all the cars in it. If you if you get my book, you can uh, uh behind the screens you can see uh some of the pictures of uh the junkyard uh, and uh and the placing of the cars that went along because it was an incredible piece of work. You know, it took 6 weeks and it took uh 20 to 25 people uh that were in the art department and then another 10 people that were, you know, working in special effects. Uh, to do all the gags that were in it, because all that was practical, except for one element, and that's a, that's therein lies the story. There's one element that was shot uh, as the beginning of an optical uh, a model, and then we built to the model at the same time that the optical effects people built to that same model. For the shot of Kincaid circling and saying, Freddy, and yelling, Freddy's back, right? What we did is we did a pull-up and then was in the, the maze that we had created in real life it, and then became a model that was made off of my model of it, right? Uh, so that the placement was correct, so that the, the uh, so that you didn't see where you melded from from reality into the uh, into the optical. At the end of the, our shooting, at the the end of that, uh, we gave them our negative, and and then uh, we gave it to DreamWorks, and DreamWorks then took it, spent two weeks shooting the model that they had shot, and gave it back to us, and then showed it to us. If you look really closely at the show, at the show itself, you'll see that there's there's actually a, a rectangle around. That you see in in the, the show as it's pulling back in that shot as it's pulling back a really highly detailed part of it that looks like a rectangle and that was what they brought back to us and said okay well this is the shot and I said well wait a minute that's not the shot because the shot is supposed to be the world and they said well you know that represents the world there that 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 shot and I go no, no. <laughs> there are there are still corners to this. <laughs> and we're going to pull out. We're pulling out, and and, and we're going to see the world. Do you understand that we're we're making this an auto world. And we had storyboard with uh, Pete Von Scholle. See, this is what we're looking at. This is it's a world, okay? But but we're out of money, outrageously over budget. Tell you what, I'll just give you fifteen thousand dollars more. Being <laughs> 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 just. You know, because they didn't want to be over budget. I said, well, you know, oh, absolutely. as long as I am already. 
Now, I was over budget three weeks before we even started filming. I was over budget. <laughs> oh, I I can imagine. I mean, all the money is definitely on screen. Well, and, and you know the, the the problem that we had with the show, or not the problem, but but kind of part of the reason it came out the way that it did was because I would sit there and say, okay, well, uh, then write something different. <laughs> if you don't want it to look like this, because that's my concept of it. Did you write it so it doesn't have to? <laughs> and nobody wanted to argue with me, so I just kept spending money. <laughs> so I give them fifteen thousand dollars, and they and so they take it and they go, "Okay, you're a man, a man of many persuasions." <laughs> <laughs> right? Hey, believe me, trust me. I, I mean, you know, production design is only five uh, percent, you know, uh, concept and art, and it's ninety-five percent just pure bullshit to get from point A to point B, and, and, and you remember when I was talking about saying, well, you know, uh, part of my job is, is to defend the design as you go along. You have no exactly. idea how important that becomes <laughs> as things go on. Now I even get the square to irritate the hell out of me. I can see that rectangle. So what they did is they came out and went beyond the rectangle. Now it went out a little bit further. You, you see, back then, if you'd already shot something, man, that was locked in. If it was an optical, that was locked in. And you were gonna you were stuck with that and you just kept going on the same piece of film. So now they come back and now what they have is an interactive mat. And the interactive mat is a painting that has uh lights in it. Right? Well in this case that was the interactive was so some of the lights were blinking, right? And some of the model lights blinked and now the interactive had little lights in it. And it went out to another rectangle. That was guys. Uh, where's my world here? And then, <laughs> and then the big argument came up. <laughs> and they said, okay, uh, we're going to have Phil explain this to you, or whoever, whoever it was. And physically, if we were moving away from the earth and, given the, 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 and you came back, you know, it would take about 25 minutes to get from the point to where you looking at earth and you could see the edges of it. And said, "Wait a minute, hold on. <laughs> I cannot believe." Now, and, and this is this is this is a case of where intelligence, uh, or, or is something like intelligence, I guess, uh, kind of gets the best of you, and, and and you start to overthink it to the point to where you're just plain wrong, and it just it would take you 20 minutes to get to the point to be the size of Earth. You see what I'm saying here? I, I know I'm what like, you're saying. I know so, what you're saying. I'm in the middle of a of a film about dreams, and you're telling me that you can't just stop at some point and make it fucking around. Are you? I are are you? See, you didn't want to ask if somebody was high back then, because the chances were they were. So you're you're just giving, oh they're giving ammunition to the flat earthers. Yeah, you didn't want to get in an argument. What are you, high or something? They turn around and go, what are you, not? <laughs> That's kind of an intrinsic problem at the time. <laughs> if you see what I'm saying. Oh, Lord. <laughs> so, so I had to, so I said, look, I give you $15,000. No, I'm not fucking kidding. When you come back, it better look like a motherfucking <laughs> planet. <laughs> and, and the really weird thing about it is that if you look at the shot, <laughs> you understand that they went from a meticulously detailed model to uh, 
to a, an interactive mat, optical version of using crayons to finish the thing <laughs> out. How, how often on set does these sort of uh, butting of heads moments come up? Uh, you know, <laughs> it just depends on the group. But, but you have to understand that we're, we're all ego-driven and, and um, different films have different amounts of it. Basically, on that film, part of the reason that I wrote the book that I did was because on that film I had that magical feeling that there were great bulk of people in that film were going in the same direction and and doing things that um, I mean you have to look at all the people that that went on to do amazing things from that show you know well, uh, Rennie, I mean, obviously well yeah but Rennie and Chris Biggs and uh, like the the DPs second and third unit went on to be you know Oscar winners uh, the, the list goes on and on and on and on I had worked in a lot of TV uh, and uh, I had worked uh, on Tales from the Dark Side, and on Tales from the Dark Side, it seemed like every other script came up with the word limbo, right? <laughs> Mysterious limbo, right? <laughs> you go, you go, oh yeah, oh this is a, a, yeah, it's another limbo, you know. So you did everything creative in limbos that you could, and I think limbo is designed is uh, designated as uh, any set that starts with a bunch of black fabric. <laughs> So you can't, so you can't tell where you are. That's limbo, and then you go from there. <laughs> and and I had kind of really learned what the camera could see and what it couldn't. And uh, we were completely out of money, and we were getting to the end of the script. We rented the uh, warehouse next door, or, or I think it was maybe two warehouses down. We rented another warehouse, and we walk in there and, and said, "Okay, well, this is where we're going to put the Friday church." <laughs> And I went, yeah, yeah. Now, you have to understand, if I was three, if I was over budget three weeks before we started filming, imagine where I was by that point. <laughs> Nobody wanted to see me. <laughs> when, when I saw the accountants, all they did was roll their fucking eyes. That was it. You know, just, oh, shit, that guy. Okay, so, so I said, you know what we're going to do is, we're going to ring in this place with black fabric. <laughs> and then we'll just put the most important prop pieces in. And we're going to fill it with smoke. And we're going to call it the Freddy Church. <laughs> and that's exactly, where, that's exactly where it was. Because that entire set consisted of frames of windows hanging in the air. And they weren't even windows. They were just, I mean, literally the frames of windows to give you this look that there's a window, right? And then there was the, a big flat that uh, was 14 feet high that had the double doors in it, the weird trapezoidal doors. We, we created a stone rim around that. And uh, we had some platforms, some pews, a couple of columns, and stained glass window at the front of it that was a match to the one that CJ had built that was at the end of the tunnel, what I call the um, kaleidoscope set. To watch this right now, and you had not told me that, I would not have, I would have thought, well, it, the, you know, everything was put together in black fabric. <laughs> so that's the mag free magic of filmmaking. So that, that's just pretty pudding at how good you are to go, at your job. <laughs> well, here's the funny thing about it is that when you were standing there, 
in that set, quote unquote set, <laughs> it was it was sort of like people kept looking around going, So this is it? <laughs> and I go, dude, trust me on this. <laughs> the camera is going to build this thing. And the thing is is I remember distinctly thinking to myself that um I, I was like the huckster from um yeah, seventy six trombones, uh that uh that <laughs> just that the camera's going to do it. You know, if you keep thinking, right? If you keep thinking about the note, you'll you'll create that note. <laughs> and and I have to tell you, it worked. And I I I love this. Every once in a while, I said, so so what was the Freddie Church made of? <laughs> I, just, I tell people that what was on the walls. <laughs> Well, that, that's truly incredible, and I'm, I'm glad you uh, shared that story here because I'm sure our li- listeners will be, uh, when they watch the, the film along with us later on in this very episode, to point that out. So thanks for that. I, I did plenty of research on this, and I, I did not know that. Your work, at least from my perspective now, since you told us that excellent story about, you know, the, the building of the church and, and how <laughs> Black Fabric saved <laughs> saved the production single-handedly, um, <laughs> You you have this book out called Behind the Screams. You want to tell us a little bit about uh, where people number one where they can get it, uh, why they should get it, and uh, and go. Okay, well uh, you know you go to behindthescreamsbook.com and you can order it. Uh, uh, you basically order it from me, and I send it out of my house. Uh, I, I have enough copies to sell at. Uh, conventions because i go to a lot of conventions and um yeah that's uh the reason to buy it is this is i got together uh with blake blake best and we interviewed maybe 40 to 50 people that worked in on the film that were friends of mine and then that way i could take originally it was going to be my story um about the making of the film but i kept having to call people up to fill in because I wanted them, I wanted a, a more complete story of it than you hear. Because you always hear the the stars and the director and the uh, basically that the stars and the director, you know, the, the principal uh, people, yeah, right, right, and, and they tell the same damn stories all the time. And the thing is, is the making of these things was. A tremendous story. I mean, making of anything has got, you know, so many better stories and they're so more, so much more indicative of the time. And what we, what we didn't know at the time was that it was the last, it was about the last that you were going to get building really, really big things and doing every possible type of, uh, uh, makeup and mechanical effects that, that exists, uh, you know, in a show because pretty much over the 90s began to uh, come of age. And mid-2000s, uh, the concept of doing things this way was completely gone. You know, It's, it's really sad that like all these, the old school mentality, which I think a lot of, well, I think I would say that just uh, horror, horror movies and uh, just movies in general are sorely lacking in that attention to detail. Like you were saying, like nothing on set is, is by accident. Well, having an actual effect on screen, you know, that's somebody actually built with their hands, 
it's just a completely it's different experience. It's pretty intentional. And, <laughs> yeah, it's very intentional. Um, but it, it's just a different experience than seeing something that somebody is, I mean, don't get me wrong, they've well, spent hours working hard on a computer, but the, these films hold up because of the blood, the sweat, and the tears that went into making them. And like I said before, oh, yeah, and I mean, the, the money's on screen. The ingenuity's there, too. This, this is why I want people to get this book, is I tried to tell all those stories. I tried all that background stories, all the stories about what it was like to make to make this stuff work, to uh, to to work on this bizarre scale that just isn't going to happen again. You, you know, th- it was blood, sweat, and tears. I mean, there's a, there's just just so many examples of it, and there's so many examples of you know how hard uh, how the hard work actually came out on the screen, and and, and I. I think that my book is completely unique in that it goes in and it looks at everybody's different, all, all the different stories that were behind the book. I will say that for anybody that has any interest in the behind-the-scenes making of films, uh, this is definitely a book they need to be checking out. I myself am going to be uh, getting a copy here in the next uh, little bit. Uh, you know, tax times are right around the corner. So I'll be putting some uh, dollar bills in your pocket uh, very soon, Mr. Strong. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> you know, I spent a lot of money on, on, on making it look the way that I wanted, and uh, I'll never, I will never make back the money that I put into it. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, I, I, uh, uh, I, I, I guess it, it it's going to uh, be a labor of love. All right, uh, Freddie isn't Freddie isn't the only slasher you've had history with. You also worked on Texas Chainsaw Massacre Three, which, uh, from what I've learned about production design today, only makes me appreciate that film even more because it's it's beautiful, all the bone art and all that stuff, very cool. But the new thing that you've got going on is you're actually working on a film called Vengeance, which is a hundred percent fan funded direct sequel to Friday Thirteenth Part Six, Jason Lives. Uh, you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure, I retired. I retired up. To uh, uh, Washington, and I've met uh, some great filmmakers up here. And Brown Space Films with Jeremy Brown, and uh, going to be doing first AD and production design work on Vengeance. And uh, it, it's it's my goal. You know how you know how you have bucket lists. Yes. My bucket list. My bucket list is uh, to complete my uh, my quartet of the uh, most important horror franchises. <laughs> I think I know what you're saying. We've got to get you on a Halloween film next. That's that's, that's right. Every time I say that, people go, "Well, well, okay." So Halloween's coming up, right? <laughs> but all right, guys on Twitter, let's uh, let's get it uh, let's get it trending. Uh, hashtag uh, book uh, mixtron for Halloween 2020. Whenever the next one comes out, there you go. <laughs> so um, so I hear that you have some questions for me. Okay, uh, this one comes from actually one of my cohorts on the show, uh, a gentleman by the name of St. Dick Eddie. Don't let the crazy name fool you. He's, he's a good guy. Um, what were some of your most difficult challenges you faced working on the film, at working in the film industry? You, you know, uh, the, the, one of the weird things about it is, is we would uh, just absolutely kill ourselves for uh, uh, for very little pay. I mean in proportion to working in LA and because we were doing uh science fiction and we were doing horror and uh stuff like that and and I think that uh 
one of the frustrations, you know, you're looking at all of your friends making, you know, buku bucks, you know, doing doing uh, episodic TV or uh, getting on to like uh, ordinary people or something like that, and you're like, uh, you are literally up to your elbows in blood and mud and <laughs> and and sawdust and and ashes. <laughs> <laughs> trying to get to, trying to just you know and and having to work continuously, never taking any time off because you you know you had to take the next thing that came up, and I think that uh the frustrations of being in that world overall ha- have kind of re- recently been um ameliorated because nobody ever thinks about all that other shit. <laughs> <laughs> When you were working on Roger Corman's adaptation from Marvel Comics to Fantastic Four, did you realize that it was never intended to be released? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I did realize that, and and it's only because of Ole Sassoon that any of that ever got finished up, even as far as it did. And o- Ole literally stole, <laughs> literally stole, stole a, a, a VHS tape of the film and did his best to, like, get some effects done to it and stuff. <laughs> that was the craziest thing ever. And and I have to say, you know, from a production design point of view, considering we spent no money, and I mean no money. You know, Roger Corman says, well, yeah, no, I made that film for a million bucks. Roger Corman never – you know what? He, <laughs> his, the thing is, is he never even spent a million bucks on anything in his fucking dreams. <laughs> You know, I mean, he doesn't even do it in his sleep. Spends a uh, million dollars on on twenty films. Here's a true story. We had to have half the film done. This was this was the agreement in order for Constantine to maintain their copyright on the characters. We had to have half of the film done January first. Now we had literally we were halfway through the filming schedule, which by the way. I mean, I mean, I was on this film halfway through November was when I found out about the film. <laughs> wow. November, December, <laughs> right? <laughs> you can rag on me any way you want for how the film looks, but oh, holy shit. <laughs> oh, no, no, I, I think you're a miracle worker, if nothing else. Literally, I was shitting scenery. You know, I mean, shitting fucking scenery. So, and there's so many great stories that go behind behind that whole thing, and, and we don't have time to get into it. But <laughs> we were half done four days before. Uh, I was even surprised when I got a call to come back on like the third, the third of January. Wow, yeah. I was like, wow, really, <laughs> really. But the thing is, we had to within six months we had to assemble a version of the film. Right when I left. When I left, four days before the end of the year, when I left, there was this old man sitting on the stage that we did for the Mole Man, right? There's this guy in a director's chair, which really surprised the hell out of me because I knew for sure that he must have brought it with him because there were no director's chairs on that goddamn spot. Nobody would actually, actually... Spend money for that? You got to be kidding me! <laughs> so, so I I walk over to make sure that everything is closed down, right? And I walk over there. This is a lumber yard. This is a used lumber yard. Think of a lumber yard, right? You know where you got those big sheds, right? That they put the two by fours in and shit, right? Okay, take that concept 
and closed the shed up on one side, and then on the other, and it was like two of those sheds facing each other, which would have worked wonderful for a lumber yard, for a film studio, maybe not so much. So then the other side, he did the same, right? So I go in to make sure it's, it's you know, closed down. There's this old man <laughs> sitting, sitting with a uh, legal pad in front of him, and he's scribbling down. He's looking around. He's sitting on the set. I come up to him, and I go, hey, uh, I got to go. We're all done. Uh, I- I'm locking these off. <laughs> Our two, can I help you or something? He goes, oh, he says, no problem. That's no problem. Uh, my name's Roger. I'll I'll shut it before I go. And I go, okay. <laughs> I, I go, well, it's Roger Corman. Okay. Well, there we go. <laughs> and, and so, so I leave. I come back four days. And, and I ask him, so well, what are you doing here? <laughs> he goes, I, he says, I like this set a lot. Um, I just kind of <laughs> writing some script ideas down. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, bad chance we're going to be back in four. We're going to be back in six days. <laughs> that motherfucker, when I got back there, everything was repainted. Everything was moved around. They had fucking filmed two films, I found out, in our sets while we were gone. In that short amount of time? Oh, you see, now, now, now you know, now you know you're talking about Roger Corman. Oh my God! We, we used to think there were some, we we used to like get people's resumes. And let me tell you, and this is an honest thing: you would get somebody's resume that was like mm, maybe maybe a grip, right? And you would see that they had that, that they had done thirty films in six months. <laughs> They're all Corman, uh, Robert Roger Corman films. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, and you would know, and you would go and. You know, even if they and the thing is, is what you would do is you put the titles in, and you wouldn't put the company name on them, right? So if you looked at somebody's resume and in six months they had thirty films, and they hadn't put the name of the production companies next to it, ah, uh, gotcha. They were working at Corman. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's truly incredible. Uh, Mick, I can't thank you enough. Uh, I feel like we've only scratched the surface. Uh, you know, time permitting, uh, sometime down the line, we'd love to have you back on the show. Uh, this has been this has been great. I love all the insight you've given yep. us from uh, Number Nine Street uh, down to the unreleased Roger Corman uh, Fantastic Four. Oh, I have a story or two, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds it sounds like you are a. Uh, Quite full of uh, many, many <laughs> joyous stories. <laughs> um, you want to tell everybody where they can uh, find you on social media? I, uh, you know what? Uh, uh, social media, uh, Strawn, uh on Facebook. Uh, you can get a hold of me that way. I'm on Instagram, although I very rarely look at it. Uh, I think I'm on Twitter, but I really don't care. Uh, the thing is, is Twitter assumes that you can cut yourself off with, uh, 120 characters, and I have never been able to cut anything that I say off down to 120 characters, as you may now know. Well, I would say you're a better man for it. Uh, all, all the better <laughs> from the more, more colorful of stories. There you go. Uh, I do have a podcast called Behind, uh, uh, no, sorry, uh, podcast Dream Warrior Review. My, Friend Kurt Thomas and I, uh, we rail, we rail about, uh, uh, a given film that 
you know, has come out. We we do a review, and uh, and then I babble about uh, you know filmmaking, and uh, you can hear all my stupid opinions. Um, well, and, I'm sure uh, all of them are stupid. Well, that's no, my, that's my no. attempt at humor. I, I just not all of them. Are stupid. Thank you, thank you. Well, <laughs> you know what? You should talk to my wife about that because uh, oh, I'm, sure that she would, I'm sure that she would bring it a different perspective to that thought. All right. Well, we'll table the discussion for uh, the, the opinion of your wife for uh, for another time. Nick, thank you so much. Uh, everybody, stay tuned. We're gonna. Uh, Here's some messages from our sponsors, and when we come back, we'll be doing a full-length commentary for none other than the great film that this gentleman we just talked to worked on called Nightmare on Street 4, The Dream Master. Stay tuned. Thanks a lot. Hello, everybody. I'm John, one half of the Sick on Cinema podcast. And nearly two years ago, me and my co-host Matt created this podcast to discuss the most disturbing films ever made. But since then, we've expanded to include films that are weird, disgusting, offbeat, and just cult cinema in general. You can hear us bi-weekly on iTunes and SoundCloud, or follow us on all your favorite social medias. So if mainstream film just isn't cutting for you no more, or you just want to expand into extreme cinema, then just remember the podcast is dedicated to the dark side of film. Sick on Cinema. Cinema. Cinema! Alright, Ray and Army making his long-awaited debut into the Black Lodge. A gentleman I have known for the better part of my life. For better and for worse. Only for better. <laughs> Sitting to my left... A man I've wanted on the podcast since its inception, because in one form or another, he and I have been having basically these kind of deep thought movie conversations for the better part of 20 years now. Oh, easily, but, you know, uncensored. <laughs> uncensored, with much more hate speech that we won't spill out here. <laughs> just horrible, just, just horrible stuff, but... I'm ha I'm here with my professional hat on today. Oh yeah, we've only had a couple of shots. We're gonna save the uh, drunkenness for later on. Then we can shout to my neighbors and rub our dicks on their uh, furniture and which I and did have. I have wiped them on their screens, outdoor screens, before and woke up thinking I had bruised my genitals. Uh, I.e., he did not. But <laughs> that's a story for another occasion. <laughs> Happy birthday, Brandon! I bruised my dick. <laughs> All right, uh, like I said before, sitting to my left, Mr. Fat Tony. Yes, the uh, one, the only, uh, the greatest. <laughs> Tipsy Tony right now, sometimes drunk Tony, always Fat Tony. Now, uh, we were going to have uh, Stank Diggetti along for the ride, and unfortunately, due to circumstances beyond our control, he could not make it. Uh, Fat Tony, you've never had the pleasure of meeting Stank Diggetti. I was looking forward to it, but unfortunately, he sounds like a bitch. He is a bitch. And he has stank dick, so stinky that I'm glad he's not in my apartment right now. All right, ladies and gentlemen. I do. I must interject real quick. My dick is always fresh. Always fresh. Always fresh. And I don't even know where to go with that. I, I bought a <laughs> nut rub cologne. I got that for Christmas. I highly recommend it. Always have fresh nuts. All right. Happy New Year, everybody, and get your nuts nice and fresh. All right. We're going to be queuing up A Nightmare on Elm Street 4, The Dream Master. You're going to queue it up to the scene right at the very beginning when the New Line Cinema logo is going to be just about to cream onto your screen. 
And <coughs> on the count of three, I'll say hit play. When I say hit play, hit play. All right. Three, two, one, play. All right. A Nightmare on Elm Street 4, The Dream Master, was released on August 19th, 1988. It had a budget of $13 million. Its domestic box office uh, was just shy of $50 million. So to say this movie turned a profit would be an understatement. Correct me if I'm wrong. Is this not the most profitable Nightmare released? Uh, as far as the original canon. original films under the Nightmare banner, yes, it is. Now, when Freddy vs. Jason came out, they... Blew that number out of the yeah, water. Of course. But as far as just the standard Nightmare on Elm Street movies, this is the one that kind of tipped the scale. And actually, to a point, uh, at that point, it was the most successful independent film ever made, which is fairly uh, impressive in its own right. Uh, this movie has a 57 rating on Rotten Tomatoes. It's just shy of being fresh. It has an audience score of 43, which I found kind of interesting because uh, this is sort of like uh, the movie that's in between the one that everybody loves and this begin the, the the turning of the tide. I guess with the younger audience, with the younger audience, I believe you have a lot of drop off after three, which is arguably the best or tied for the best, and you know. The drop-in quality is noticeable, but this is by no means a bad movie whatsoever. Uh, no, considering the fact that this movie was made during the writer's strike and its script, which we'll get into a little later, uh, was kind of... Uh, uh, they, had, they had to get it into production super quick, and it could have been made probably with a lot more thought and, and intent had it been able to have a gestation period. But... On IMDb, this movie has a 5.7 out of 10 rating, which is, you know, right on the, you know, the, the, the decent level. Uh, however, Google users ranked it at 91% that they liked it. And uh, I think that's, uh, that's probably more indicative of how people actually feel about yes, this movie. Yes, that is. I, I do believe. And it has a meta score of 56. Uh, this movie has a body count of six, seven if you include Freddy. That averages to one kill every 13 minutes. Not the most uh, blood-soaked movie we've had here on the podcast. Freddy never has been the most blood-soaked franchise. Well, he, he likes to play with his with his prey a little more. You know, that whole gallows humor, and which is a lot Absolutely. more evident in this film than previous ones. Uh, how do you feel about that? Do you think that that's sort of, this is like the turning point of Freddy becoming more well, of the, this is definitely the clown the, rather than the killer? The turning point, I believe, is in part three when they added what I believe to be the perfect mix of fright and humor. This does tip the scales over to kind of, and I, I believe when you're in the fourth movie in a horror franchise, that's really your only option. You know, the good horror franchises know this. Um, Friday the 13th got really ridiculous after part four. After part four. Part four being perfect. Um, the Chucky movies, the fourth one, Bride of Chucky, is a straight-up rom-com. So that's really the only way that you can't make Freddy scary after a certain point. But this is definitely the tipping point, and it is a negative overall in the franchise. You know, at, at this point, Freddy became the cinematic version of James Bond. I mean, he's he's so loved, and I mean, obviously, uh, Robert England, the tie-in with that character. I mean, he is... He's definitely, this is the first movie where he's definitely the central focus. Nobody cares about any of the actresses. That's why they replaced Patricia Arquette without a second thought with, 
you know, some other woman who could feel, because it's not about the kids anymore. It's about Freddy and how he's going to kill them. Well, we'll get into the story uh, later on as to why Patricia Arquette supposedly is not in this film. But this film does boast some of the actors from Part 3, uh, some of the Dream Warriors making their return to the screen. Uh, also, Kristen's mother is in this film, yeah. reprising her role. And oddly enough, the little girl we're going to see here in a few moments, she's re- uh, having her uh, role reprised. No, I did not know that. That's that's a cool little, little piece of trivia. This movie was... Uh, uh, nominated and won several awards. It was nominated uh, for Best Horror Film, Best Supporting Actor for Robert England, and Best Director for Rennie Harland at the Saturn Awards, which is sort of like the horror equivalent, or horror science fiction equivalent of the Oscars. It's a big deal, even to this day. Well, Rennie Harlan, of course, you know, he... Um, correct me if I'm wrong. He directed Die Hard 2. Die Hard 2, and yes. I I will argue this till the day I die. The pirate movie he did, which names blanking for me, probably from the two shots <laughs> cut, we had. Cutthroat cut Island. Island is not the worst movie ever made. I see what they were going for. Uh, it was uh, f- about fifty years too late, <laughs> but he I believe he delivered the movie that he did want to deliver with that movie. Oh well, considering that movie had, the, I think at the time, the highest budget. Oh yeah, of, it ruined a whole film studio. Didn't uh, Car- it? Uh, Carol Cole Pictures, which was. Uh, um, uh, crap. I know uh, James it beat, Cameron. It I know James it beat Heaven and Earth. I know it beat Heaven and Earth for like the the highest budget versus like the biggest loss at the box office. Yeah, it it bank it bankrupt uh, James Cameron's Caracol Pictures, which is why we didn't end up getting James Cameron's Spider Man, which was in pre production around that time. Having read the script online, thank you, Odin. <laughs> I, I will sacrifice a ram in your name for that. I agree. Um, I want to get this out of the way. Now, long-time listeners of the podcast know that my all-time favorite film is Ghostbusters, and Tony, I would imagine Absolutely all-time favorite movie. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and knock this out. Uh, very, very short connection to this film. Uh, Rennie Harlan directed The Long Kiss Goodnight with Gina Davis. She Great was movie. in Tootsie with Bill Murray, who was in Ghostbusters. So there's your... Your super quick connection to those films. Everything connects to Ghostbusters. Oh, I have I have yet to be stumped. So if you want to be uh, the first to try, go ahead and do it. But I, I got to tell you, I got a mind like a like a steel trap when it comes to Ghostbusters. So let's talk a little bit more about Rennie Harlan. Uh, he got uh, this role or the role of the director by sheer determination. He kept going to New Line's offices, and he just he showed up, and you know he was fresh off the boat. From Finland, he had directed a movie called Prison. Did you ever see Prison? I did see Prison. It's uh, a pretty good movie. Uh, for for a low budget movie made for a million dollars, I mean it's it's terrific. That's actually the reason that Kane Hodder and John Beekler ended up getting to make Friday Thirteenth Part Seven is because of their pairing on that film. So Prison is a, a more important movie than I think a lot of people realize because it got Rennie Harlan the job on this film, and it got Beekler and Kane Hodder uh, the roles and directing. Duties for Friday the 13th Part 7. So that that in of itself is sort of an interesting direction to go in. Like we uh, stated before, uh, Die Hard 2, Die Harder with Bruce Willis. Uh, he also directed The Adventures of Ford Fairlane with Andrew Dice Clay. I'm sorry, I love that movie. It is a great movie. I love Andrew Dice Clay. I don't know he's he's totally politically incorrect for the climate that we live in these days, but he's funny. Come on. But that movie did uh, ruin most of my young adulthood trying to find a flammable milkshake. <laughs> I haven't I haven't seen it in quite a while, but I do remember that. I actually, it's actually up here on the shelf somewhere. I, I actually watched it on some streaming service. I don't know if it was Amazon, Hulu. I know it wasn't Netflix. Probably about six months ago. 
it holds up surprisingly well. I I, I like it, and I also like uh, is it the Brain Smashers that he made that with, Brain um, Smashers, yeah, yes. with um, uh, Wayne Newton, the villain in that film. You know who's in Ford Fairlane? Who's also in this movie? Who? Robert England. That's right. Yes, yes. So Rennie Harlan kept his uh, his. The people that got into the dance, he kept them close to the vest. He also, as I stated before, he directed The Long Kiss Goodnight with Gina Davis and Samuel L. motherfucking Jackson. Motherfucking Jackson. Now, That's an underrated movie. I want to talk about this film because my stepfather, um, his hall pass, by all accounts, is Gina Davis. So if she were to walk in here today, um, him and my mother probably would have a, a big blowout fight over that. Well, if it's his hall pass, there should be no fight. I agree. My mom's hall pass is Rod Stewart, so I don't I don't know who uh, makes out better in that end. Rod Stewart's <laughs> Gina, a- Gina, your stepdad definitely makes out better. <laughs> uh, my favorite Gina Davis um, performance is in Transylvania 65. I was about to say Transylvania 65,000. Oh, I well, watched that at a very formative age, and I believe that movie was the movie that incited my puberty. Uh, actually, you're bringing this up. Um, that was probably one of the early ones I remember having repetitious self-love-making. Why too. do I love this movie so much? <laughs> um, Batman Returns was my fir- my fir- the first one I ever uh, realized that there was a direct correlation between an erection and a erotic woman. female form. Yeah. Oh my God, Michelle Pfeiffer in that that cat suit. Okay. I do have to interject here real quick. I was talking to Brandon about this before the podcast. One thing I do love about this movie that is so 80s is how they uh, cast the quote-unquote ugly, awkward, and nerdy chicks. As they're in the parking lot right now meeting everybody. The sister... Um, the only thing is, she doesn't have a lot of makeup, and her hair is flat. And in the 80s, if you had flat hair, that was anathema. And here coming up right now is the quote-unquote nerd, who is, and I'm sorry to sound sexist, a solid eight. But let's put glasses on her, and a frumpy outfit, and she's the smart uh, She's the smart nerd. I love 80s movies nerds. I do believe that's why, to this day, I have a glasses fetish. Oh, me too. Big time. Big time, big time. By the way, for those people listening, Brandon has glasses on right now. I do right now. I'm getting old. My eyesight sucks. And I've got extensive notes, so I'll make <coughs> sure that I don't miss anything. Uh, the young lady he's referring to, her name is Toy Newkirk. She plays the role of Sheila. Uh, she had a fairly decent uh, career in television. She was in a few episodes of A Different World. She had some small roles on 227, Beverly Hills 90210, The Commish, uh, Living Single. Her, she has a on-screen kiss with Freddy Krueger later on in the movie, and oddly enough, that is her first on-screen kiss of her and career. What better first kiss can there be? Let's suck face. I mean, come on. I mean, that's that's a, Freddy recognized her true beauty. He he did. He sucked the life right out of her. Would you, in the same position, would you suck the life out of her? Maybe not to the point of murder, but given a <laughs> consensual chance to make out. With her, I would definitely, if I weren't with the best woman ever, shout out to my fiance Sarah, definitely participate in a little suck facing. Oh, another. Uh, let's say about while we're bringing up Sarah, yeah. would you like to take another dig at Eddie because your 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 fiance let you come? My here fiance not only let me come, she encouraged me to come. And you know, as a guy, I'm always like, "Are you sure you set me up?" Well, I'm with the perfect woman who will straight up tell me, "No, get the fuck out." Go have fun, get drunk, do his podcast. And I told her I was going to give her a special shout out on this podcast. And being the just the 
badass woman that she is. She's like, oh, well, I can't wait not to hear that because podcasts, unfortunately, are not her thing. But me being me, I'm definitely going to make her listen to this. Well, make her download it uh, at least a handful of times. I need those. Oh, lessons. absolutely. Everybody. Rants from the last podcast. Google Rant, Play. Rant, Rant, Rants from the Black Lodge. Sorry. Rants from the Black Lodge. <laughs> I've had a very long week. Rants from the Black Lodge. Google Play. iTunes. So anywhere you see it, subscribe to it. Download. This man is a genius. Oh, I, I don't know that I would go that far, but I, I appreciate the endorsement. Thanks for the 20 bucks. <laughs> <laughs> who th- ever thought I had 20 bucks to throw around? That's ridiculous. That's I, I'm broke. I'm broke. All right. This this movie was uh, was made... Oh, I'm getting a call. I'm going to turn my phone off. You should think I should know better than that after doing this for the better part of a year. I'm going to turn that off right now. Um, this movie was written right during... A writer's strike. And there have been a handful in our lifetime. Absolutely. Killed the show Heroes. Uh, it killed uh, the show Reaper as well. Yeah, right. Really. Terrific, love that show. terrific show. Well, uh, they'd already greenlit this picture, and uh, a gentleman by the name of Brian Held- Held- Heldland, I can't pronounce his name, H E L G E L A N D, whatever, uh, he wrote a bunch of of stuff, great movies, even some movies that are, you know, Oscar caliber. Um, but he had to kind of phone this in, and I know that's probably not the best term because he, he did the best he could under the circumstances, but had this movie had another few Passovers, it probably could have been a movie, you know, on par with part three. Part three had a lot of Passovers, a lot of time was taken with it. This one, unfortunately, didn't. Well, well, Frank Darabont, uh, did the rewrites yeah. on part three. So, I mean, that... And that, arguably, uh, no, not arguably, he made it, but I enjoy his vision of what part three became over um, Wes Craven and who was the other guy? I can't remember. Yeah, there was, there were two I'm, writers I'm on that that, you know, they did an okay and then Frank Darabont kicked it up a notch. Listen, I, I mean, I'm, I don't want to speak ill of Wes Craven. I uh, know, no, but, I love the man. But Wes had some some wacky ideas and I, I may be the one of the few people who genuinely loves a nightmare on Elm street part two. I do too. It is very underrated. It is psychologically nasty. Um, they, and people shit on all the time from the view of the sequels, three, four, five, you but know, yeah, it breaks the, the rules. There were the, no rules were when no they read rules that at that time, technically three, four and five broke the rules. Part two laid down. <laughs> that's that's a, definitely a viewpoint I don't hear a lot of people speaking. So thank you for being a defender of of. Well, I am a genius. I, I, <laughs> 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 that's a discussion for another time. I I, you, I will I will say this. You know the the weird conversations, the drunken hours of conversation that you and I have had over some of the worst movies of all time. It's nice to be able to have a insightful conversation about a good movie, and I do think this is a good movie. Absolutely. Um. Just to, to run, run down this guy's uh, work, uh, he wrote uh, 976 Evil, which was the directorial <coughs> debut of Robert England. Uh, he did two episodes of the Friday the 13th series, which I, I will defend. Very underrated show. Great show. You said nightmares for, as a child from watching uh, that. It's uh, not quite Twin Peaks. No. But it, it served what the purpose. Is? Well, that's true. But it but it kind of laid the groundwork for X-Files and Millennium and those shows I that, can came, that. that came I can later. see that. I can see that. Highway to Hill. Which uh, stars C.J. Graham, a.k.a. Jason, from Friday the 13th Part 6, which is available in our archives. Go check that episode out. L.A. Confidential. 
What? He wrote L.A. Confidential, yeah. Um, which is a terrific movie. It stars that Kitty Diddler, uh, Kevin Spacey. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, we won't even get into his whole weird YouTube video as Frank from uh, House of Cards, but needless to say, he ruined that and Usual Suspects for me. And Usual Suspects usually hung in my top ten but not oh, even man. his accusation. That video about his accusation has now. I retroactively cannot watch anything he's in. I may be the in the minority, but I don't like usual usual suspects. To me, you're the, wrong. The, okay, you're well, just wrong. I mean, I will I will take that on the chin. If I if I'm incorrect, then I'm incorrect. But to me, the usual suspects is like an episode of Scooby Doo. It, it I can see that parallel, but are you trash talking Scooby Doo who have <laughs> featured a movie on your podcast true. of Scooby Doo? Check and mate, I right, win. All right, I, I, I will we'll table this discussion. I do have to interject. This actor right here, what is his name? Uh, the black gentleman. That's yes. Ken Sagons. Ken Sagons. I got to meet at a very small yeah, we, convention. We, we met him together. and talked to him for about two minutes. And I'm not dissing him. I could not understand a word he said, but he did have, and I do regret to this day not paying for his autograph because he didn't just autograph. He did these amazing little doodles like "fuck Freddy, pussy," <laughs> and signed his name. But I don't know if he was drunk, tired, or uh, just the acoustics of the place. I could not understand a word out of that man's mouth. Yeah, listen, I, 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 he was very nice, but I, yes, I, very nice. I struggled to understand him as well, but and I, I don't want to speak ill of him, but he, he, to me, I think he had been drinking. Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you're doing as small a conventions as that was. For perspective, there was like the sheriff character from the Ernest movies there who we met. Oh, yeah, Billy Brick. Billy Brick, yeah. Very nice man and who did it for charity. This was very, I mean, they had some kids from Swamp Thing too. This isn't the top Daniel Emery Taylor. Uh, this, yeah, I remember. Yeah, see, that, that's this from is the, retur- Brandon's the return genius. of Swamp Thing, which is yes. Swamp Thing too. Yeah, he, he D- has directed the, by Jim Wynorski. He has the, <laughs> the mind for the minutia. But if you're at that kind of, uh, convention, why not be drunk? I, I'm not hating on him. Uh, you, you know Reggie Bannister from the Phantasm movies? Absolutely. I was at a convention in Nashville, and I mean, to say he was drunk would be the understatement of a lifetime. Uh, good friend of both of ours, uh, uh, Matt Underwood. Oh, yeah. Um, we're standing there, and Matt's just a generally nervous person. I'm not talking shit about you, Matt. It's just, it's you are. Speaking truth. We love you. And even Matt had a good giggle. He's like, man, he's drunk. And he, <laughs> he kept just shaking his glass, and you heard the... <laughs> No, the, he's like the he's ice chingling. Like, bring me another drink, bar wench. Uh, I would too. Let's take a moment to uh to look at the the production design hey. of a gentleman who we just do an awesome interview with, uh, the legendary Mick Strawn. He tells the story about how they got this whole uh, junkyard. They cleared out a lot. They bought tons of cars, and they laid this whole thing out. Okay, whatever people might say about, and you have the hipsters that complain that after part, it's one in three, and those are the only good ones. Uh, really starting with part four, well, starting with part three, but part four and part five, however you view them, they took set design, they took special effects, they took these movies seriously. One of the first Fangoria issues I remember buying when it first came out was the issue talking about Nightmare on Elm Street part four and how they pulled off the effect at the end and the care they took with it. And these movies really do show that. However you might feel about these movies, and if you don't like them, you're definitely wrong. And you're probably not a good person. But that's okay, because I still love you. 
Um, I'm not a good person by any stretch of the imagination, but I do enjoy these movies. But they took real care with the, the look of these movies. This movie, some aspects you can argue make sense or not. But like you said, this was written in a rush crisis mode. But, you know, these movies did care about how they looked. What You know, they didn't just shove stuff off till to the audience, which, and I hate to say this, I'm sorry if this upsets Brandon for disparaging, Freddy's Dead felt really rushed. It is <laughs> it is the only movie of the original canon, I still count it canon, that I can say I love, but I love because it's a bad movie. These other movies I, I love. I actually saw Freddy's Dead in the theater. I did too. Um, and... I had to keep telling people, leave your 3D glasses off till the end. It says it right here. <laughs> Little kid being a jerk. I really liked it, but I mean, you have to take into consideration that, I mean, even though, I mean, like, we're, we're, we're both you? close to the same age, but yeah, I was a little. I'm about three years older, and at that time, three years was a big difference. Uh, I still loved it when I saw it in the theater, cause I was, what year did that come out? 91? Uh, not, yeah, 91, I, I believe. 91. So I was 10 years old. That puts you about seven or eight, six, between uh, six I was, and I was seven. So, you know, and, and they really are, there's no attempt to scare in those movies. And they did do the whole 3D gimmick, and I guess you could say, but oh, four but as, and five. As, as a kid, though, the 3D gimmick was awesome. Oh, absolutely. But three, four, and five is really when they stepped up the special effects game. And, you know, learning about that through Fangoria, which I lost that auction, by the way. There's a whole long oh, story about that. He was about to win a, just a whole a crate full of uh, Fangorias from a, a library. Uh, I'm going to interject right here. This gentleman we're seeing on screen, that's Rodney Eastman. He's reprising his role of Joey. Uh, he was in a, a bunch of movies. And this guy actually has one of the longer uh, credits uh Film acting credits. Uh, Very that, disturbing in Last House on the Left remake. Yeah, he's a movie yeah, he's so disturbing that me and Brandon we had to start joking and cutting up, or we would have not been able to make it through that uh, movie. Yeah, it is. It is. Uh, sh- show me your teeth. It's a dis- it's a disturbing sure. movie. But I want to I want to before I get to okay. his his whole rundown because God he's got a ton. I want to talk about this scene right here. Um, as a kid, this is probably the first Nightmare on Street movie I saw all the way through. And my part three was the first one for me. My aunt and uncle had a satellite back when that was like a big deal. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And they had Cinemax and they recorded this on a bunch of, you know, but like a tape, like an SLP, 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 eight movies on a, on a cassette. And this scene, I re, I rewatched this scene to the point where you could not see anything because that was the only option for a naked lady I had for the longest time. You kids time. these days are spoiled. They're I, fucking cuddled. I found a water-soaked uh, penthouse one day walking to the grocery <laughs> store, and it was one of the greatest days of my childhood. <laughs> oh, they'll never know. They'll just never they'll know. They'll never know. There's actually some awesome behind-the-scenes footage of Freddy's stunt double in this scene where he's like, we've been shooting this for six hours. If you can't get us the next shot, I'm fucking done. Where did you see that? Because I remember I've watched the Never it, Sleep Alone. It's Never Sleep Again. And Never yeah, Sleep Again. It, it is during uh, the, the Nightmare on Elm Street Part 4 section that okay. you see. That. I, that's a very long movie and there were I watched it on a computer um, back before high speed internet was real. I mean, it was, we had high speed. That's why I was able to watch it. But I was in my kitchen, a hardwood chair. I got up and smoked a lot. It is very long, as is the Crystal Lake Memories of the Friday the 13th. Uh, let's talk a little more about Rodney. Uh, 
he he's in Chopping Mall, again, directed by Jim Wynorski. I'm giving him the plug of a lifetime. Even though you won't be on the podcast. We still love you. <laughs> we still love you. We still love you. You did uh, Return of Swamp Thing, terrific movie. I love that movie. And um, Cheer- Cheerleader Massacre, which is an official sequel to Sleepaway Camp. But anyways, uh, he was in a few episodes of Charles in Charge. He was in, like you said before, the I Spit on Your Grave remake, which is terrific. Uh, CSI, Who's the Boss, Jake and the Fat Man, Babylon 5, Touched by an Angel, Murder, She Wrote, ER, Sliders, Millennium, which is hot I love that show. the most underrated show of its time. Only went three seasons, didn't get a proper finale until they did a throwaway episode in the X-Files, and it just, Lance Henderson deserves better. He absolutely does. You know, they wrote, uh, James Cameron wrote The Terminator for him, and yeah. the studio wanted... Um, OJ Simpson, OJ Simpson and, and uh, they had a good eye. They could re- they could see the future. <laughs> well, he didn't get the role because they're like, well, they're not going to give this role to. He's too nice. This guy would never murder anybody. <laughs> ah, ah, sadness. But yeah, he, he's been in so Officially many. Officially declared innocent. Just yeah, had to say on, that for legal reason. Yeah, on the but did time in prison for hanging a man outside the window. <laughs> That's true. But the man had his stuff, so I'm still conflicted about that. You know, I, I agree he shouldn't have done that, but you live, you learn. Full disclosure, I myself have done prison time um, for being too awesome. That's true. Eight eight to ten for... For, <laughs> for just for, being amazing. For being being a amazing. fucking legend. <laughs> The, uh, the, I have this literally written down in my notes, um, slut in waterbed. <laughs> Her name is Hope Marie Carlton. Let's and not, she, if, she if just you just like sex. If you, if you hear this, I, that's a joke. I, I, you're, you're probably not a slut, but if you are, uh, DM me on Twitter at mm-hmm. Rance Black Lodge. Many, many a time, private time spent thinking about you and uh, that thing. She was a Playboy Playmate, um, she, uh, she, did you ever see Hard Ticket to Hawaii? I have, I'm aware of that movie, but I never watched oh, it. Oh, I need, I need to track it down because it's one of the best bad movies ever made. And she's scantily clad in that movie as well. Uh, she's in Slaughterhouse Rock, Slumber Party Massacre 3, Ghoulies 3, which is a, a terrible uh, movie. It's but, terrible, but, it's, it's but I still like it. So it's a fun movie. And she's also in The Stand, which is a common thread I found. A lot of these people were in, uh, Stephen King, uh, made for TV adaptations. As and but the, I know I'm getting off topic here, but the the common thread of every almost every actor <coughs> of every episode we've done, they've all been in the X Files. I mean, what, my but, top ten favorite shows of all time. But it's just weird that there's this like common thread of everybody being in the X Files. Probably a lot of industry stuff. Oh, I know this person or that person who would do this or that. Love the show. I would say probably one of my top five favorite shows of all time. Because, again, I am older and cooler than Brandon. <laughs> I just don't have the mind for Minutia. He's sexier, though. I'll give him that. Yeah, by, by a smidge, though. Just a smidge. If he shaved, he wouldn't be. <laughs> no, no. I got a weak chin. He'd look 12. <laughs> uh, speaking of chins, speaking uh, of this chin right here is giving it away. That's obviously Robert England. Out of makeup. Bet he loved that scene. Just throw on a wig and some lipstick and you're good to go. I love his voice. Um, yeah. The the acting prowess of uh, Robert England is uh, not to be uh, underestimated. What's your favorite role of Robert England aside from Freddy? Aside from Freddy, his character on V. I remember watching that Willie. as a child. Willie, the, the friendly and, alien. And I love that character. And when I found out much later that he was the guy playing Freddy, 
it did, it, it kind of broke my heart a little because I was still young enough when I saw Nightmare on Elm Street 3 the first time, and I believe it was on Cinemax. Um, that was the first one I saw all the way through, and it was, I believe, my older brother Brad that's like, uh, he knew I liked V and mentioned, well, that's your friendly alien guy. He couldn't remember the name. He didn't say friendly. That's that, you know, wimp, wimpy alien from V, which that <laughs> sounds nothing like my brother, but I am not rich little. Um, but, uh, there's, it a, did. there's is, a reference for the past. Yeah, that the kiddies is, won't get that one. <laughs> no, what are you talking about? All the kids are up on rich little. Um, but definitely that's like, I don't have to think about it. That's definitely my favorite non Freddy role. Um, I'm going to go with a dark horse, uh, a little known Toby Hooper, uh, project known as Eaten Alive. Very good movie. Yeah. Sort of the spiritual, spiritual successor of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's just this really down and dirty exploitation movie. It takes place in the bayou. There's gators and, and sickles and it's a, it's a really, really underrated movie. So I, I suggest you go First time I ever that saw that, I bought one of those like $5 box sets of like 20 movies. Uh, at Walmart, and I'm like, what? There's a Toby Hoopy, mo- Toby Hooper movie. <laughs> Toby Hoopy. I love those movies. <laughs> Toby Hooper movie. Watched it. Blown away. All the other 19 movies. Complete garbage. There was, I believe, uh, a lovely naked young woman in one of the other movies. Other than that, is, but it was definitely worth five dollars. Uh, I forgot he was in that until you just yeah. mentioned it. Robert Englund's in. Uh, he's, I mean, the guy's got an extensive uh, resume. He he works on a regular. I did basis. also love him in Behind the Mask, The Rise of the Leslie, Rise of Leslie Burner. Terrific, terrific movie, which we're all longly awaiting the the you know the proposed sequel to it, and unfortunately, for whatever reason, it hasn't happened. I'm we're conflicted. Four, we're I'm four. Conflicted. Let here. We're four sequels in the hatchet and we've only, we only have one Re- Leslie Vernon movie come on we've, we can do better well, than those people people enjoy the gore and outlandishness as do I of hatchet but uh hatchet had uh none of the subtlety and actual emotion <laughs> and acting that the rise of Leslie Vernon locked at, at down. least not in the first one well you, Daniel Harris put a little a little bit of Daniel uh, Harris is always good in anything she's in and I will get in a fist fight if I had a hall pass that would be who I'd want it on I grew like she is just slightly older than me I grew up with Halloween four and five the biggest crush on earth yeah she uh, she is still a fucking fox man and by all accounts and great really, really, movie she's really, in really nice. Uh, hit us up on the on the Twitters, please, Miss Danielle Harris. We love you. Let's uh, let's talk a little bit more about Robert Allen. I mean, obviously, you can't undersell the the reasons these movies are so successful. I mean, it all comes down to Freddie. Uh, being personified by the great Robert England, uh, he his version of Freddy Krueger was ranked number forty on AFI's uh, list of hundred greatest heroes and villains. A list that consists of both heroes and villains, and he's number forty of a hundred. That's pretty impressive. Well, I do also have to point out, amongst all the other popular horror franchises of the eighties, this is the oddball out because this killer has character and personality. He's not behind a mask. He's not a silent force of nature. He is a, a trickster god who who just gleefully loves everything he he's doing, and you can talk about you know certain sequels in the Slumber Party Mass, and nothing on this level. It was Halloween, Friday the Thirteenth, and then Freddy. Halloween, obviously, Friday the Thirteenth, obviously, it's all about a nonstop killing machine. 
Freddy gives the flair and personality. And he is, I definitely believe, starting with any other actor playing Freddy Krueger in the original, even under the great direction of Wes Craven and the great overall originality of the story, I don't think it would work as well, but he definitely, definitely cemented that in part three. Okay, well, you know, in part two, they started out shooting the movie with a different actor as Freddy Krueger. I did not know that. They're, okay, the scenes where, uh, the homoerotic scenes where the, where the coach is being whipped. I don't remember that actor's name, Jesse's name. Oh, uh, God. If I you, met um, him in uh, Sevierville at the Halloween. Some it was Gatlinburg. The Gatlinburg, that's what I meant. What did I say? Sevierville? Gatlinburg. Sorry for anybody who lives around here. They they hate it when you lump everything together. Yeah, I totally but hate that. Yeah, that so. was a very nice man. Uh, I've still yet to sit down and watch his documentary. I'm not Jesse. I don't know if it ever got made. I believe. I, I believe. I, I believe it is released. Out now. He was a very nice man. I have nothing against the homosexual undertones, but how to the me, writer and director like, did not see those in the movie that's bullshit. Baffles that, the how, mind. How the fuck he did not see that stuff is just insane because it's so blatant personified in that scene so the coach is Absolutely. getting getting whipped and he's having balls thrown <laughs> thrown at him which is just the most obvious uh, after metaphor. meeting a student at a leather s&m gay bar exactly but anyways there there's the scene where freddie there's like the steam and stuff and yeah. he walks through it and freddie has a way bigger build so they hired a stuntman to play Freddy Krueger, and they started shooting the film, and they got the dailies back, and they're like, man, this is not working. And they didn't, they didn't want to pay Robert Englund what he was worth. That's the so, same, so, same problem that Gunnar Hansen ran into doing uh, the Texas Chainsaw, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Massacre. Pay the actors what they're worth. They make it. Yeah, uh, well... The, you could same. argue for the Leatherface more than... But you cannot argue that there is one Freddy, although I do like... The, I'm in the minority... I like Jack Earl Haley's Freddy, but there is only one Freddy, and that is Robert motherfucking England. Uh, truth to that. Uh, Robert also has a, uh, a pretty cool career. He's directed a few things. Uh, I stated before he directed uh, 976 Evil. Fun, weird movie. With uh, Stephen Jeffries from Fright Night, the weird little, little kid. Uh, evil. Yeah, he played Evil, yeah. Uh, who turns into a vampire, and you feel genuinely bad when they have to kill him. Great movie. Fright Night, uh, finally getting a, a full-fledged, uh, wide release on Blu-ray. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, he also directed a couple episodes of Freddy, Freddy's Nightmares, which Freddy's Nightmares... You could do a whole thing about that. They It spurned completely out because of the uh, the success of this movie. But yet again, New Line was uh, producing things on the cheap, and those first couple episodes, they all looked pretty good for... A low-budget TV show, and then after that, man, the budget got slashed to a point, figuratively I, and literally. I was that watching it's just something so about that show where it came to a point that the people making it just tried to see what they could get away with. You know, just like they, they just stopped caring. Like, let's see how far we can take this. Let's see what we can do. Because if you look at the time it came out and some of the subject matter in those episodes, um, it is absolutely. Is everything all right? Yeah. Okay. You know, it's absolutely pretty hardcore. Not gore or anything, but you know. Okay. Well, the the in, the intention was that this show is going to be syndicated, and it would be playing. You know, like after ten o'clock. Well, the problem is that they sexy sh- times. They, they showed it. To, they showed it like on weekdays in the middle. You know, middle of the day when when like you know moms usually watching uh, soap opera. Days were lives, and you know kids would be home and be playing on Saturdays when like. 
<laughs> when when cartoons were on. So it, the the target audience never really found the show much like they did with the Friday Thirteenth show, which was terrific until that third season and everything kind of fell into to disarray. But Freddy's Nightmares is a uh, probably best remembered as they the enterprise that gave us a backstory to Freddy Krueger. Absolutely. The first two episodes, uh I want to say it was the first two episodes, served as sort of like a uh almost like an unofficial movie directed by Toby Hooper. Well I don't know that it was too sequentially because I know the first one was the prequel, the background, the cop and I thought the episode with the cop's twin daughters, I thought that was a couple episodes. Was that it, the second episode? I, I believe it was. Okay, you, I'll, I mean, I'll defer to you. Well, here here's the thing, though. Because it was syndicated, there's a possibility that, even though it was the production order, they may not have been released And it would have made sense order. to produce. You already have the actresses there. The I love the conceit of that episode where the twin daughter... Like, one twin won't believe the other, so the other just lets Freddy cut her, and then the other twin is cut. Great episode. I, I st- I'll still, in my heart, consider those two episodes canon. Uh, I, the, I the, do not consider the one where the <laughs> photographer is taking pictures of models and Freddy, and she knocks them out and Freddy kills them and she takes pictures. That is not canon in my heart. <laughs> I, the, the only thing I don't like about the, the, pre, the prequel episodes directed by Toby Hooper is when they're in, they're in the, the courtroom, Freddy is wearing his striped sweater. Absolutely. I thought that was a, it's a little and the Freddy vision, like the, the, the way the screen, like the, the camera distorted when you're looking through Freddy's eyes, which, you know, a lot of serial killers have brain damage. Maybe that explains Mr. Kruger, but that was a bit, it was a new camera effect. They wanted to show it off. Kind of dumb. Other than that, it's it's flawed, but worth the watch. I, I I'll agree with that. I mean, if you can find it, I have a bootleg copy of all the Freddy episodes. Um, I know it's been released on DVD in like foreign countries, but never in America, to my knowledge. Uh, one last thing about uh, Robert England before we uh, hitch a ride onto some other so there, some other people in this film. I couldn't find a hundred percent confirmation on this, but I believe this to be true. But evidently, Robert was considered for the role of Mr. Joshua in Lethal Weapon that ultimately went to Gary Busey. Um, Thankfully went to Gary Busey. Well, I, just, I love Robert, you but love man, him, but Gary Busey, that's that's a role that is synonymous with him. And only crazy, giant-toothed Gary Busey could play a role like that. Let's talk a little bit about Tuesday Night, uh, who... Unfortunately, uh, took over the role uh, for Patricia Arquette. We're actually probably in her in her very fortunately fortunate, for her. Fortunately for her, um, I, I for per movie, I don't know. I, I I like Patricia Arquette in Part Three, and I guess it would have been nice to have her have been in this movie for the sake of continuity. But I I really like Tuesday Night. There's a really naturalistic quality to her. Oh yeah, that. Uh, she's she's really sweet, and there some of her line delivery to me, like a lot of times in especially in horror movies, and even the best genre actors, I can tell they've been rehearsed, and you you hear them say things, and like, well, I can hear them; they've had said that like how many times through all these different takes. I don't know. She just comes off as very natural to me. 
Yeah, but, but she she has a she has a background. Her her father Baker Knight was a musician uh, back in the back in the old days. He wrote a song called Lonesome Town and The Wonder of You. They were big hits back in their day. But music is something that has ran through uh you know through her family. She she was actually the year before this movie came out. Uh, she released a self titled album and uh, of music. Uh, she was signed to Vanity Records, uh, but after backing vocals, uh, she did backing vocals for a Quiet Riot, like as in like well, that's metal fucking amazing metal health. The oh well, then that, the first metal album legit. to ever go number one. She sang backing vocals on that album, and I guess they were like, "Well, shit, we've we've got to sign her to a record deal." So Vanity Records signed her, but after after I guess. You know, there was all this... Well, what's the word I'm looking for? Hype. I've got to pause you. I'm sorry. I've never noticed that Nancy's tombstone is the back is in the background of, of a shot in here when they're in the cemetery. And I've seen this movie a billion times. Well, I am an idiot. Well, I will we'll go... I'm, I can't 100% credit that to Mick Strawn, but fuck it. I'm going to give Mick Strawn fuck credit yeah. for that. Mick, thank you so much for, uh, for paying attention to continuity. Uh, but like I was saying before... Um, there was all this hype around her album and CBS records bought her, her contract out and she released this album. I mean, it did fairly well. She did actually did a cover of uh, Prince's song. Why you want to treat me so bad? It wasn't the single off of it. Uh, probably should have been probably in retrospect because, you know, name Prince, recognition Prince at the time was, you know, probably that was peak Prince. To, yeah. Just to, just at the, the plateau of his, uh, his career, you know, your post, uh, Purple Rain, pre-Graffiti Bridge. So, it's right at that I, I, point. I know positive. Purple Rain past that. Brandon is the Prince fan. I appreciate what the man did, but if I could, at gunpoint, name maybe four Prince songs. Oh, well, shit. And I've seen the man live. It's a great show. Uh, yeah, I mean, I saw him on the music you, college. You saw, did you not see that raisin. with my fiance? I did see that with you Sarah. You did. Oh, fuck, man. Small world. That was a great concert. Until I saw Iron Maiden, that was the best concert I'd ever been to. And uh, Iron Maiden, uh, hard to beat. And since then, you know, I've seen Judas, Judas Priest. Priest, Black Sabbath on the same tour. Uh, I can't, I can't win that. Black Sabbath, greatest band of all time. Point. All time, and Dunk. I will fight you. <laughs> I will fight you as well. They changed music. Period. No doubt about it. Gods, <laughs> metal gods. But okay, back I'm, to this. I'm gonna I'm gonna jump ahead just a bit. Uh, we had a question from uh, a friend of ours, uh, Matt Underwood, wanted to know what Tuesday night is up to these days. Well, in 2000, her and Lisa Wilcox, who we're gonna get to in just a moment, who plays our main protagonist, uh, they founded a footwear uh, footwear jewelry company called Tobrite. Uh, she has a specific line called Tuesday's Hip Vintage, and evidently it's become really popular with uh, like famous people, like Britney Spears, Angelina Jolie, Madonna, all wear her stuff. So even though like she's not like in the acting spotlight anymore, she still has this legacy. She's doing well. So yeah, I mean she's still raking it in, and I have to say, um, I don't know what it is. Uh, but the older she gets, the more attractive I, I find did. Her. I saw the preview. I think you might have posted or somebody about the the new Freddie Fredheads thing. documentary. Fredheads documentary. Saw her looking good. 
She's got, I don't know, there's something about her round face that just does it for me. And, um, I want to pinch that, cheeks. what's her name? That is Lisa, Lisa Wilcox. Wilcox. I'm really horrible with names. But, uh, still, I mean, she's showing her age, but in a very sexy way. I'm sorry. Nah. I, hate to, I hate to objectify. Now, this is, okay, I know you don't have to follow along with the movie, but we're coming up to the Freddy's Makeout Session. And this is, I remember seeing this as a kid. Uh, fairly, I think it had just come out. My, uh, my older sister and older brother, well, my older sister had had a kid by then, but my older brother would spend weekend, every other weekend with us, you know, cause he was my dad's son. And I remember this came out, so he rented this. And for some reason, this kill, mind you, I'm very little, scared the shit out of me. This whole scene, starting with the, the moving math and Freddy and the little husk that is left, Absolutely terrified me, and I could not go to sleep till probably three o'clock in the morning that weekend. I first saw it. I, you know, I young me was a pussy. Well, and, no, <laughs> no. I, I mean, I'm not going to no. call you out for that because no. what scares someone at the at, at that particular age, especially when you Anything. discover horror films, start um, to learn about death, you know, in general. Freddie never really scared me. Um, now some of that had to do that, like I saw probably the later movies first. So I I had more of this jokey idea of Freddy in my head before I ever saw part one and part two, which I, which I'll say genuinely have some really scary scenes in them. But this is super creative. Oh, absolutely. Like I said, like four and five, even though five, a lot of people, that's their least favorite they did a lot of creative... They made a lot of creative choices. I hate the way Freddy looks in that movie, but I love the set design and the gothic nature oh, yeah. of that. We actually they watched that. Him. Yeah, we watched we, that. Back in uh, July. Yeah. Uh, I got to be home alone while my great fiancé was visiting brother in California, and we got very drunk and got in a conversation about that, too. <laughs> Uh, it's it's an underrated film. I, I I feel like the the downfall of a lot of slasher movies is because they're so cheap to produce. They they had to crank them out at such a, a breakneck pace that they didn't leave a lot of time to really develop the stories. And I mean, you could argue that this film probably came out too quick, but it has a reason why it's probably more disjointed than it could be. Part five doesn't have. And there's no excuse for that. They just, they went too fast to get that movie into theaters and the story suffers. Although, albeit, you know, the visuals it's, in that movie are really and good. And it's kind of original. It's the execution versus the inception of the idea. Just, it didn't level out. You know, Freddy taking over a kid could have went somewhere good. Using the dreams was an interesting thing. They never really harp on it. I didn't understand that to probably my fifth time watching the movie that Freddy was using the baby's dreams. To get live people, and then even my young twelve-year-old—I might have been tw- no—I saw it before the so ten-year-old brain was like, "Well, how does that work?" Part four. Yeah, <laughs> we're back to this. Lisa Wilcox. So, so Lisa Wilcox, who plays Alice, uh, she reprises her role in Nightmare Five. Uh, a lot of people fondly remember her as kind of being. Say so which one about five? Alice and Lisa Wilcox. Solid. Now, I, and I can't 100% confirm. I don't actually think it's her breast in the movie. It's her, not. I've, but, I saw something that it was definitely a body double. But, but her, but her Very character. Very disappointed. Her character is naked in the movie, and as a kid, that's all I needed. Oh, exactly. 
Uh, nudity is something this film actually kind of lacks. Like uh, you got the, you got the one scene there, and the the lovely lady in the waterbed. Because I would never write <laughs> slut, um, and that's about it. And well, then, you uh, Linnea Quigley has a small role in this film, and I will point it out. You're going to have a part where Freddy's uh, chest of souls is going to be oh, erupting. Yeah, I didn't count those in that nudity, but yes, technically she's nude in the movie. But there's a dental dam covering her, so that's one of those, like... I didn't know that was her, because I follow, I think it's Nightmare Sisters on Facebook. She's part of that, and a lot of stuff uh, about those cheesy 80s movies. While we're on the subject of Linnea Quigley, where does she rank, like, as, like, most bangable horror hotties of all time? Fucking top three? I, I, man, she might be number one She might me. be number one, um... Night of the Demons, the part oh. where she's in the fuck when she's in the the grocery store and she's wearing those pink panties and she bends over to distract the guy so they can steal stuff. That that's my that's my childhood puberty right I, there. I I probably made myself raw and bleed from that. But <laughs> then also in that same movie when she shoves the the lipstick into her nipples, another movie that weirdly freaked me out. Like that scene. I mean, that's a more... Oh, I know we're getting a little off track, but okay. have you ever seen the the remake of Night of the Demons? I watched it once and forgot about it almost immediately. Yeah, they they take that Shannon scene... Shannon Elizabeth, isn't it? Or uh, Edward it's, Furlong? It's, uh, yeah, Edward Furlong, Shannon Elizabeth, yeah. uh, Tiffany Shepis. I bought it and forgot about it. Yeah, well, they, they recreate the, the lipstick scene. I do but remember it, that. But it's, they, they go way further with it, I mean, to a point where it, it ceases being camp and just turns out to all-out disgustingness. Um, Lisa Wilcox... She auditioned for the role of uh, the main character of Rachel in Halloween 4, as did Ellie Cornell audition for the role of Lisa, uh, or, I'm sorry, of Alice, who got the role of... Lisa, who got the role Lisa of Alice. got the role of Alice. But it ended up, you know, kind of the way I guess it probably should have. Cause Absolutely. Ellie, Ellie Cornell is perfect in Halloween 4, and Lisa Wilcox, I mean, she's... The personification of what this character absolutely is. She even credits that like so much of what this character is on page is kind of how she viewed herself at the time. She thought she would never have a boyfriend and and that kind of stuff. And I got to tell you, like, man, if I even now, I would, I would. She could be seventy years old. I'll break your fucking hip, man. the, The quote unquote frumpy Alice. And this is one of the few horror movies that actually gives like a real character arc to their protagonist instead of just survive, kill the bad guy, move on. Like you see her character progress. And I, I joked about the flat hair, but in this scene, you could tell there's been conditioner. It's slightly <laughs> lumped up. She's got the first soul in her collect, you know, cause she is the dream master. Um, so, and it does, I don't see, I personally don't see how she could ever see, but maybe bringing that, those insecurities really helped this role, period. Like, it, like I said, for a slasher movie, she's one of the few heroines that she really gets a complete arc through four and five. That's true. Uh, now I'm not sure, uh, how far you've read, but I have read Freddy vs. Jason, and its sequel, Freddy vs. Jason. Oh, Freddy vs. Jason vs. Ash. See, I actually, Warriors. I actually skipped that. Like, I didn't know that existed. And I bought it at a convention we went to. Um, Freddy vs. Jason vs. The one where they take, Freddy takes over Washington. Nightmare Warriors. Yeah. That movie, 
I mean, her character is front yes. and center in that, and they bring all the survivors of the respective genres together. Slaughter throne. And that was written by Jeff Katz, who I have to say, like, if this had been a movie, it probably would have been unfilmable, but man, what a Amazing. fucking ride. One of the best comic adaptations of all time. I still have to say fuck you to Jeff Katz, because he's the reason that Kane Harder wasn't in... Freddy versus Jason. So fuck you, Jeff Katz, but thank you for doing fuck a, you, but thank an, an you. awesome, an awesome meditation. And what was the name of the gentleman who was in Freddy versus Jason? Because I don't want to take anything from him. Because I met him. Ken Kersinger. I he was him at him. that uh, Gatlinburg convention, yeah. wasn't he? Was at one of them. I met him. He was a very nice man. He did a good job. Kane Hodder is Jason. Listen, like as the way Jason was written in the movie, uh, he probably wasn't correct for the role. But the way the movie yeah. was directed, he he is what the director wanted. That's so really Ken, Ken Gersinger was fine. Here we have a, a gentleman uh, giving giving a lecture. Yes, the, I spoiled it. I'm sorry. Uh, that's fine. It's what you're here for. He's cutting me with a razor blade as we speak. <laughs> it's dull, so it's extra painful. Uh, Bob Shea. Uh, Pretty much uh, the the success of of New Line all rested on his shoulder because New Line didn't produce movies until they produced Nightmare Elm Street. Yeah, they just re- they were a distribution. They were company. a distribution company, and they called New Line the house that Freddie built. Now New Line became a Oscar winning production company Freaking with the Lord of the Rings. Yeah, with the Lord of the Rings trilogy, but they would have never gotten off the ground had it not been for. The Nightmare on Elm Street series and House Party. They also produced uh, the first two or three uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle movies, which were the uh, first one's really the good. The first one's great. The second one I liked when I was a little kid, but I was just old enough to be embarrassed by the Vanilla Ice cameo and the dance. The third one I watched way later on VHS, oh, and I'm glad it's, I it's horrible. I do have to say this about Bob Shea, though: the good and the bad. We have the Freddy franchise only because of him. He's the one that insisted Wes Craven make it open, leave it open to a sequel. Kind of money hungry, but I'm glad he did it, even though it does speak to more greedy intentions. Peter Jackson originally intended Lord of the Rings to be two movies, and he's the one that looked at Peter Jackson and said, well, aren't there three books? Do yeah. three movies. So yeah. I'll give the man props. Artistically, sometimes he can make the right choice, Greedily, he can sometimes make the right choice, but without him, we would not be enjoying the movie I'm watching right now. I mean, it truly is sad because he built this company, and then they had the AOL Time Warner merger, and he got ousted. So the guy who got them to the promised land got removed from his position. That's so I'm sad. sure he's doing okay. Though. Well, it's tr- it's I'm sure he is as well, but it's it's still sad in any regard that the, the man who got them to this point is no longer there. Okay, I have to stop. We are at the point in the movie where there is an a, an invisible kung fu fight, <laughs> and I bring this up not just because it is funny. This is the absolute point in the movie where it becomes a balls out comedy. Before he killed. Uh, the first two original survivors from part three in down gritty, the, you know, sets and locations. He threw, um, Kristen, Kristen into the, the thing. His first non Elm Street kid kill. Maybe you could say, well, the character wanted to have fun. He's not constrained anymore. But I think for the movie, they just wanted to kick it up. Okay. Well, uh, when I spoke with Mick, he told me that they were like fifteen grand in the hole before they even started oh. filming. Um, so then an invisible fight makes sense. When they got to the scene, 
they had no money, <coughs> so this was a means to an end. Now, in context, this is this is like classic Freddy. It makes absolutely. it makes absolute it's sense. One of the most memorable scenes in the movie. But this is one of those scenes where people kind of tear it a new asshole. Like, well, okay, ha ha, there's there's there, you know, Freddy's invisible. Um, if could, you watch any kung fu movies, you know all about fighting with the blindfold. <laughs> it made sense. Screw you. But I love you. <laughs> Man, they spent a lot of time in this cemetery throughout the movie. Is this the same uh, Korean cemetery they used in Part 3? Because I know Part 3, they couldn't show the wording on the tombstones because it was a Korean or Japanese uh, cemetery, and none of it was in English. I just Uh, didn't know. To to my knowledge, it's not the same. No, it doesn't doesn't look the same. Uh, But, you know, I am on occasion... Potentially wrong. So, Very so, rarely. So feel people. free to do your own research, and if we're incorrect, uh, drop us a line at, at Rance Black Lodge. And feel privileged to correct us. Um, Lisa Wilcox, who plays Alice, she she's been in quite a few things. Did you know that there was a live action Bill and Ted TV series? The 90s? Oh, okay. I thought, yeah, I've seen that. No, I did not know there was a TV series. I did know there was a live action Bill and Ted. Can't wait for the third one. Oh, uh, yeah. Rock on, dude. I, I'm looking forward to it. But she was in seven episodes of that. I didn't know this even existed. I'm tracking it down. Uh, I knew that there were two animated series. I didn't know about those. But I, I had no idea. I didn't idea. know there were two. I knew there were one. But. Um, she uh, she had some smaller roles in Hardcastle and McCormick, General Hospital, Mr. Belvedere, MacGyver. I remember the Mr. Belvedere. It's one of my all-time favorite 80s shows. I remember her when she was in it. What do you remember? Like, the only reason I remember it is because I recently watched it not too long ago. METV okay, plays yeah, Mr. Yeah. Belvedere. I'm like, oh my god! And she's one of the few actresses out of these movies I can name her name: Lisa Wilcox, uh, Heather Langenkamp, and John Saxon. Because there was a prior review to Nightmare on Elm Street Part Three by a very esteemed internet critic called Drunk Tony. It's no longer available online, and probably for a good reason. <laughs> And, uh, that is the understatement of a lifetime. Yes. All sorts of uh, very proud. Uh, forced, I remember John Saxon love commentary on that. Uh, we had to put a warning up, but uh, I was very proud. I remember John Saxon's name in that. But well, John Saxon's a legend. But I was incre- I did not use stunt booze in that oh, review. No, you were incredibly intoxicated. That was one of the funniest nights of my life. Yeah. So uh, feel free to go and try and track it down. Unfortunately, we think it may be lost to time. I, I we may have this. On a, a video uh, set cassette somewhere out there in the ether, uh, we'll look for it. Uh, maybe someday we'll uncover it. We'll never show it to the public, but we'll look for it because we'll have a blast. Watching. Yeah, I don't. I don't think society, as it stands, with uh, as politically correct as they are, they can handle the things I, that you I say. I am a it. fiance, a stepfather to two wonderful children, a great uncle and uncle. I cannot have this get out to the public because I was a deplorable human being. Although it is easily the funniest thing I ever did, I don't know that I go that far. It may be the funniest thing you've ever you've did ever done film. on film. On film, I did uh, for one. Uh, we were at a friend's house, and it was my idea to make a domestic abuse joke about Miller High Life. <laughs> that, uh, is, that is available. <laughs> yeah, that is available. Miller High Life. Next time she'll get it faster. That was amusing, and I'm also in a bra in that same video. Drunk Tony, luscious. Tammy Mefford. Luscious Tammy Mefford. Oh, I digress. We're, I'm getting us off track. 
her brother's been killed. Yes, and he is played by Andrus Jones. Uh, he he's also got a uh, somewhat of a, a decent uh, career in the film world. I've only like I've seen him and stuff, but the only other movie I can remember him playing significant, and you know, this was at a time where I didn't get a lot. It was in and then he was in some kind of group home for mental health. Seth Green is in. That's it. called the Attic Expeditions. Uh, I, Jeffrey Combs and Alice Cooper. Are in yes, that movie. love that movie. Uh, yeah, they used to come on Cinemax, and uh, I'm going to say Showtime a lot. Here's how old I am, kids. Early 2000s. I rented it at Blockbuster. Uh, how do you feel that there are no Blockbusters around anymore? Blockbuster, I always thought, was overpriced. Uh, there's a well, pop- they were. There is a popcorn video in my hometown of Greenville. Shout out, popcorn I- video. We shout love out. You. We love you. I will give you money if I'm not renting a movie. Sometimes I hold movies late just to pay my late due. Uh, we just missed it, but uh, feel free uh, to watch this movie at your leisure at another oh. time. But there, uh, when she's doing the... Uh, the nunchuck moves and it uh, shows the reverse shot of her from behind. Yes. It's obviously a stunt double because the wig. Probably is a man. So it's a very bad. noticeable so stunt bad. double. So bad. So bad. Um, Andrews Jones, in addition to. Uh, Attic Expeditions. Attic, Attic Expeditions. Uh, was also in Far From Home with Drew Barrymore. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, but what I know him best from, uh, a film that um, Linnea Quigley is also in, and this is another movie that I rented. So much uh, back when I lived at home with my parents, and uh, and they would uh, not pay attention to the the things I was whacking off to. Uh, sorority babes in the slime bowl, bowl slime ball bowl bowl-a-rama. Terrific I, movie. I I just until you said it, I just forgot that that existed. But I did rent that as well from I believe it was Time Out Video uh, in Morristown. Or maybe Video West. Either way, you kids don't know. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but uh, I, I do. I forgot that was one of my, that and Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers would always go into my oh, rotation. Oh man, crazy movies. Linnea Quigley is also Linnea in that. Quigley with is Gunner, definitely with Gunner in that. Gunner Hansen. And I want to give a, a direct shout out to Haunted Garage lead singer. Uh, he has a small role in that film. A, a gentleman by the name of Dookie Flyswatter. Um, Fucking amazing name. Best name in Hollywood ever. Um, Dookie Flyswatter, um, we, uh, our good friend Brent, uh, who, uh, unfortunately. We love you, Brent. We love you, Brent. He, he has a life that is, uh, not able to, uh, afford him the opportunity to hang out with us very often. But we were watching Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers and we were looking at the, the cast listing. We see Dookie Flyswatter. So we instantly became fans of this guy. Absolutely. You have to. I, I sent him a message on Facebook and I'm like, hey, friend of mine's a big fan of yours. And this is, uh, Cameron, who's been on the podcast in the past. I was like, he's a big fan. Uh, it'd be awesome if you could get, send him an autograph. Well, God, I mean, like months go by and I don't hear anything from him. I get something in the mail and it's a fucking autograph set list from his band, Haunted Garage. So it was one of the greatest, Fuck yeah. like, like out of nowhere thrills. Like, wow, thank you for sending this to me to give to somebody else. Cause I got to be like the hero for a day. To, to bring this back to the movie, we're almost to arguably one of the best, absolute best kills, definitely the ickiest, and probably most makeup involved in the whole series. Yes, the, um, the, cock- the cockroach. cockroach death of Debbie, who we've already established um, earlier in the film, who is terrified cockroaches. of cockroaches. That effect, uh, which we'll get to eventually. Actually, I'm sorry, I'm rushing ahead. Yeah, it, it For comes- all those at home, I'm going to put a cigarette on my arm later. We love you. <laughs> But uh, this still is a great scene coming. Like the dream well, sequence. Yes, this in dream the sequence is uh, is terrific. Made as well. me scared of movie theaters with balconies. 
they don't really see these very often. I know they have a lot of metroplexes uh, in like out west where they have like the balcony is where like you can drink beer and you know, have like little tables and you can eat and stuff. That's like a thing out out that way. It's, well, it's, it's, I'm it's moving slow- people. I love you, Sarah. <laughs> Pack your bags. It's slowly moving out this way, but movie theaters are turning more into uh, almost like this uh, social gathering kind of place where you eat a meal. A lot of them even have places where you can drop your kids off and they have uh, ball pits and jungle gyms and that kind of stuff. So it's just like, you know, full, full throttle doesn't, fan, family. If your kid doesn't want to see a hard R movie for some weird reason, you can dump <laughs> them off and be a good parent. Do you think kids are coddled now when it comes to cinema? Because You know what? I know this is my thing. I have a four-year-old great-nephew, and unfortunately I did have to censor he wanted to watch Halloween uh, 6. I have that. I hope it was the producer's cut. It was not the producer's cut. God that, damn that's it. That's another reason I said no. <laughs> but, you know, a kids are coddled. Me, my parents never really coddled. They protected more against sex than violence. I remember that um, Silver Bullet was the first R-rated movie I ever saw. I was probably four. I was probably his age. Uh, not a scary movie. Loved it. Loved the wheelchair. But um, it's got the guy. Yeah, kids these days are coddled, but then again, sometimes with the cooler parents, kids these days are kind of living in the golden age of horror movies. That's that's true, and I just feel like we're in a position now where like everything is scrutinized to a point where like you can't even have fun with movies anymore. You can't, and and there's the weird balance. You can't, and everything's scrutinized, and at the same time, kids on their phone can watch whatever you want. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I, I'm sure kids today are probably exposed to far worse things than we ever were. Listen, in here. such a casual sense of the word that, like, that if, even if they see like a movie, it probably wouldn't even it bother would not them. even bother them at all. Yeah, yeah I mean, you're probably uh, right. You hipster helicopter parents, uh, I believe you should lock your children in a closet, make them watch Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the original, and if they come out unscarred, then they can do whatever they want, and you no longer have a say. If they come out. <laughs> Holding themselves, crying, then you've obviously done a bad thing and you should go to prison. You know, take that risk. Make good children. Yeah, the first movie I ever can remember seeing in the theater was Pumpkinhead. And, I mean, it, fuck, it fucked me up for a long time. But I, obviously, I like, I've turned out okay. <laughs> you've turned out amazing. The <laughs> first <you>. theater <laughs> movie I remember, and I don't, I barely remember the movie. I just remember I was so little, I was afraid the seat would pop up and fall out the back was Return of the Jedi, and no, I'm not a huge Star Wars fan, so at this point, I appreciate them. They're okay. But that was the first movie I saw in theaters. I was a little toddler. It was at the theater that was in downtown Morristown. That oh, closed I, know which, I know which one you're talking about. Yeah. yeah. That was actually on Main Street? Yes, it was yeah. on Main Street and, you know they that, had the, and you, Firefox. Do you know they had the premiere of Evil Dead in that theater? I remember a helicopter... In that, no, I remember hearing about that. I thought it was actually at the Capri, wasn't it? No, no, it, oh, it, it was there. No, it was downtown okay, um, on Main Street. Well, my my father, God rest his soul, was prone to exaggeration, but he talked about that uh, when he saw actually rented Evil Dead, not knowing it was filmed in Morristown one day, and he told me a little story. But he didn't go see it or anything. He just knew there was a big buzz around town. This uh, pizza we're seeing on screen, the... the Soul food. Yeah, the disgusting 
Soul Pizza of Souls, which was uh, it was created by John Carl Beekler. Also, the old age makeup that you saw Alice uh, right before this was done by John Beekler as well. However, the scene we're about to see, arguably number one greatest Freddy Krueger kill. Ah. The only one I can think that even probably rivals it is the the scene with Tina in the original where he drags her across the ceiling just because you'd never seen anything like that. For in a shocking film. and impactful and scary, it goes to Tina for creative, weird, viscerally upsetting. When her elbows crack open, that genuinely, to this day, I still get like a little, ooh, God, that must have been, at the very least, I'm a very jaded horror movie watcher, at the very I, least, I still I. think, man, I bet that was gross to clean up. And that says a lot. Yeah, I mean, it's just like straight hot ejaculate Flesh, pouring from man. her orifices. Yes, and, you know, that is probably Freddy's most creative, like, it's definitely the most creative. It's the most roundabout, backwards kill. Yeah, he's stabbed, he's burnt, he's hung, he's clawed. Um, he's taken over a motor. You could argue the motorcycle in 5 was as imaginative, but not that, as well done. It had to be heavily edited. That scene is terrific. However, even to this day, on DVD and on Blu-ray, it's edited. However, the VHS Showed the is, is I unrated. I, I don't know how we've ended up in a position where... We still don't have an unrated cut of a movie that is every bit of the footage is available. It's just it's ridiculous. Um, Screaming Mad George, who is a, a titan of this era of film, worked on tons of things. He's the one behind the the scene we're getting ready to see the cockroach death. Like he he's up there with like a um, and again I'm blanky Tom Sabini. Yeah, Greg Nicotero. Greg Nicotero. Howard Berger, who also worked on this film. Um, they they brought in the big guns with three, four, and five, especially even four and five, really they knew what they could lack in story, they needed to make up for in visuals, and they delivered on that. No matter what you feel about anything else in the movies. Oh, and there if it you is. say it was oh, that right there just still to this day. Uh, now, the way they achieve this effect, uh, they have the platform, like the, the bench that she's uh, laying on. Uh, she's, well, until this show. Yeah, when she's she up. sits up and it flops out, that's actually worse to me. But uh, she's sitting under there, and it took them like four or five hours to, to shoot this scene. And it took so long so that she was under there and she's like, hey, uh, I gotta pee. And I don't know if she's 100% serious or if this actually happened, but she quips in uh, the documentary that we mentioned earlier about the the history of the and the making of these long-running slasher series that they gave her a styrofoam cup and told her to go in. She's like, oh, I don't have a dick, so this is not going to work. So finally they got the shot, she got to go piss, and, and everything was fine and dandy. But it really makes you appreciate like the effort that goes into special effects. And it's not something you can just do. It takes time and effort. It really is an art form. And Absolutely. unfortunately, it's becoming more and more of a forgotten art form. Well, that's why certain movies that have come out here recently that some people might disagree with, like the remake to Evil Dead using all practical effects. I'm I, saying this I because he refuses. I will not watch it. That's okay. Well, you know, that's why you do appreciate it more. That's why there are four hatchet movies, even though the fourth one's Victor Crowley. You know, there is still an audience out there that, that loves and appreciates this kind of cinema. And there is no quicker way to make me hate a movie 
than um, digital gore. I mean, if you enhance, oh, if you cover up the... Uh, CGI blood is I'd, so bad. This is totally off topic, but I did not know this until recently that the sequel to The Thing had was shot with practical yeah, effects. original effects, and then they CGI'd over them. Yeah. Have, that, you, have you seen the raw footage? I have not seen the raw footage. I only found this right, out like... All right, drop recent. everything. Go on YouTube and and type in uh, the thing uh, 2011 or whatever it was that it came out. Raw footage. Those effects are really good. I mean, they're not on par with like Rob Bottin's uh, from 82, but I mean, for a movie made... You know, in the millennium, I mean, it's yeah. they they were tremendous, and I don't understand why they thought, oh fuck, well we got a CGI over all this work we already did. Exactly, it's, they they ruined. I mean, I, let's just be honest that that movie was never going to live up. I've to, never to been John able Carpenter. to finish it. No, it never was. I've tried to watch that movie on three separate occasions. One time, I even made it about an hour and a half in, and then somebody like called, and I'm like, well, just screw this movie. I'll take the call. I'm gonna go get something. I've never finished it. Well, you're you're not missing. I'm not anything. missing anything. I know. All right, it was in one out ear, one in one out. I can't even talk. I'm in so one eye, off. out the ears. <laughs> you know, it's just a forgettable movie. <laughs> Fuck it. Unlike Nightmare on Elm Street Four, very memorable. No matter how you feel about it, you can close your eyes right now if you are a Freddy fan and go scene by scene and watch these movies over and over in your head. If you're crazy. We love you. Um, uh, we just saw the the crash of uh, Alice and Dan. I guess this would be a good talk. Poor Dan. Uh, let's give him some love. Let's give him some love. Uh, oddly enough, uh, Dan is played by Danny Hassel. And because the script was always in flux because of the, the writer's strike, they ended up just naming the character Dan because it was just simpler because of they cast him. Absolutely. And uh, he quips uh, on multiple occasions that he thought he was doing such a bad job that they that they named the character Dan because they thought he was so bad that no, they, they, needed a, they needed to name him that for him to remember his lines or whatever. But no, he, he's fine. And he reprises his role in Part 5 as well. Has the best death, thing, death scene in Part 5. Absolutely. Uh, definitely the one that comes to mind. It's the only one, really, of, of note. I mean, there's there's great effects and a great effects team behind all the deaths in Part Five, but he's the only one that's just yeah, fuck yeah. I mean, like uh, Part Five has all of the great visuals, but yeah, the, the deaths no are blood. a little. little the director killing. hates the sight of blood. Well, I remember hearing that he can he can suck a dog's dick for all I care. Red Rocket, motherfucker. <laughs> uh, Danny had some small roles. He did Murder She Wrote, which is another. Uh, I've seen one, that from. They they all worked on Murder She Wrote, just like the X Files. The same casting director for whatever reason they they all ended up working on the same films. Uh, he also worked on Simon and Simon and Columbo. Just one more thing. Sorry, but I had uh, my mother, grandmother, aunt. They all loved those old murder mysteries in the day, and yet gave me a hard time about enjoying horror fiction. Monsters. <laughs> Like the show Monsters? No, I love that show though. And I'm read. I I thought I had a fever dream when I was a child about that show existing until the channel. I, do, I believe it's the defunct Chiller would air daytime marathons of Monster, and they used to have VHS copies at a place in Morristown. I really thought I imagined or had a dream of that show when it actually aired. They, the the Chiller, rest in peace. Oh, um, we, we have Shudder now. Which Shudder's is, much better. Yes. I'd much rather have Shudder, but Chiller 
led the way for Shudder. It was good. They would have daytime marathons of either Monsters or Freddy's Nightmares. And there was a third... Oh, Friday the 13th. And that's the only time I ever watched it. Their movies were so heavily edited, it wasn't worth it. But, uh... Yeah. Oh, uh, it, it, Like, at that point, like... Especially if it was a movie you already own. Uh, own. And if, no if, you take, if you take a look to the I left of this see, room, I, I own quite a few. I did see The Girl Next Door. I didn't know they had made a movie of that because that book is so the disturbing. Jack Ketchum. Jack Ketchum's Girl Next Door. I did see that on there. Heavily edited, but still very effective movie. One of the most disturbing books I've ever read. Jack Ketchum is awesome. Uh, that it is. Um, that's actually uh, a pretty decent adaptation of that book. If you, yeah. if you actually get to see it. Like oh, the absolutely. I've since it. watched it. Um, I know we kind of glossed over a little bit. But We're, Debbie, the the uh, played by Brooke Thies, the cockroach arm. Uh, we love you and your she, big hair. She's uh, she's done quite a few things as well. Uh, she was in a few episodes of Growing Pains with Kurt Cameron. Boom. Crazy Kurt Cameron. Uh, she was in 47 episodes of Just the Ten of Us with Nightmare on Elm Street alumni uh, Heather Langenkamp, a.k.a. Nancy. So that's kind of a cool full that circle cool. connection with the two of them. Um, she also, uh, also in that show was, uh, Joanne Willette. Uh, she has a small role in Nightmare 2. So it's a weird crossover. I know I keep saying that, but it, there's always it all weird, comes back to horror movies. things. Well, a lot of people get their start in horror movies. You know, that's where, uh, casting directors are probably willing to take the most risk because it's a horror movie. Let's pump them out. Yeah. And then they get an, a credit, you know, then they get the small roles elsewhere and, you know, then they all end up on X-Files. One or another. Uh, she was on uh, 13 episodes of the show Home Free. Uh, Don't it, remember that it, at all. That, well, the only reason I bring this up is it was the show that Matthew Perry was on before he got cast in Friends. So it's retroactively become sort of popular, but at the time it was like nobody nobody cared about it. Uh, she was in nine episodes of Beverly Hills 90210, and she was in the Halle Berry starring... Catwoman shit fest. I'm proud to say, unlike Brandon's e- refusing to watch an Evil Dead, I have always refused to watch Catwoman, and I maintain that my choice is correct. If y'all agree with me, comment or something. Send us an email <laughs> that Anthony is correct in ignoring Catwoman, but let's see if we can get a lot of met, a lot of heat on him to do an episode about the remake of Evil uh, Dead. Uh, uh, We'll see. We'll see what it takes. Listen, uh, Catwoman is pretty fucking bad, and as much shit as we give the DCEU right now, it could be so much worse, because I'll take the worst DCEU movie over that fucking Catwoman movie. That's It's unwatchable. I only needed the previews shit. to let me know, don't go see this. And it came out of an era when I did not pay to go to the theater. I could have seen it for free, and I'm still, no. Yeah, that's saying something. I mean, we're we're both frugal in- individuals. We we selectively spend our money. We'll we'll splurge on the things that we love, but we're we're not going to throw our money at something. No, that, you know. So free always goes a long way with either one of us. I saw so many movies back in the day. I remember seeing Surf Ninjas twice <laughs> with Leslie Nielsen and Rob Schneider. I had nothing else to do that day. <laughs> I went and saw it twice. Oh my god, man! Those were the days of terrible movies. What, okay, which which uh, surf movie do you prefer? Surf Nazis Must Die, 
or oh, surf, surf ninjas. Na- surf Nazis must die. I honestly, genuinely, that's one of my but favorite he, trauma. But do you know why you love Surf Nazis must die? Even though, if you realize it or not, because Dookie Flyswatter is in it. Do- <laughs> I, now that I know, <laughs> I, I want to get a chest piece tattoo of that man because that's really cool. Just oh. sending. Have you ever? Do you, do you know what he looks like? You nah, know, I have no you know. idea. Who is he in the movie? Oh is man, he a he's, character with lines. Uh, he is a character with lines. Uh, he's one of the main Nazis. That's awesome. <laughs> so he's and man, Dookie. If you happen to hear this, his, his real name is Michael Sonye. He's really cool to his fans, but he is an unfortunate looking fellow. So I want to just uh, go ahead and knock that out. You're probably better looking than me, buddy. Um, let's, uh, let's do some quick general trivia. Then, yeah, cause uh, we're getting down to, we're getting close to the end. We're getting close to the end. One got- of the least, most nonsensical, but visually stunning endings to any 80s horror movie ever. Um, I, I will say this from a visual standpoint, this ending is awesome. However, Nightmare on Elm Street 3 is the only one that makes any sense. Oh, absolutely. All the movies kind of, kind of, their endings. We've had this conversation, people, in the past. The endings of the Nightmare on Elm Street movies never really... You can kind of see one. You can kind of see three. I don't see Freddy being beaten by the power of love in two. Uh, seeing his reflection in this one. Yeah. And then the, tr- the, the fetus soul turning on him it, that five. That makes a little more a sense A little sense, this but this is, hey, here's your reflection. All these mirrors that you put in the dreams because you make the settings... Still having mirrors being somehow your weakness, yeah. but it looks amazing. Well, uh, this this whole scene uh, in our interview with Mick Strawn, he talks about how they created this whole this whole area, and without going into detail because you've already heard, um, a little black fabric and a smoke machine goes a long way. So Mick, oh, Mick Strawn is is the man. All right, um, we we went over this earlier. Nightmare Four was the highest grossing of the series till Freddy vs. Jason. This is the first film in the series where Robert England re- uh, received top billing. As he do, he he absolutely deserved it. I would argue that by the third movie, he should have he should have gotten it. Absolutely. Uh, the success of this movie directly led to Freddy's nightmares. I mentioned that before. Uh, according to Annette Benson, who was the casting director, over 600 actresses auditioned for the role of Alice, including Ellie Cornell, who ended up with the role of Rachel in Halloween 4. Um, they built a giant Freddy torso for a scene we're going to see here in just a moment. Uh, Steve Johnson, effects artist, uh, designed that. And um, they got a little overzealous when directing this scene because they're like, yeah, Rand, Linnea, really push your tits out there. Really get it. And the fucking thing tips over. So oh, my they, God. They, they, were, they were lucky these people didn't walk out like, I mean, just fucking bruised, broken, beaten, and scarred. Um, not... It's not in service anymore, uh, but Freddie was so popular at the time, he had his own 900 number. Which I was at a friend's house who will remain unnamed, because we denied this forever. Uh, after church one Saturday, I was raised 7th Adventist, and we snuck and call it, stayed about two minutes, like, oh God, we're, not that we were scared of the phone, like we just knew we were going to get our asses beat. <laughs> so we hung up very quickly. I want to give a quick rundown on Mick Strong because he was nice enough to give us an interview. Uh, 
Uh, as a production designer, he worked on The Hidden with Kyle MacLachlan, which is a, terrific, a very good movie. terrific movie. Uh, 22 episodes of Freddy's Nightmares, where he had the budget of a penny, and he stretched it all day oh, they long. All, uh, they all look good. Uh, he worked on Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3, which is a super underrated sequel. Frankenstein the College Years, one of my favorite movies that has never been released on DVD. Oh my god, I forgot about that. Terrific. Does he play football in that movie? He does. Oh it's, my god. It's, it's insane. Yes. It's insane, man, but with, with Frankenstein's Frankenstein monster. monster. It's a terrific movie. Uh, he was in Strays, which is a movie I about cat people. That, yeah. Revenge of the Nerds 3. He also did the unreleased Roger Corman produced Fantastic Four movie, which uh, he and I have a long discussion about that, which is the best Fantastic Four movie and unfortunately, very few people have seen it. Not that it's a great movie, but it's it's the most true. When you look characters. at what it's got. And he's doing the upcoming uh, film Vengeance, which is a direct sequel to Friday the 13th Part 6, which was 100% fan-funded. I am a backer of that film, and does, does I'm very much looking forward to asking it. Asking about that, is this by any chance from the guys that did Never Walk Alone or, they or Never Hike Alone Never Hike Alone uh, some of the some of the same people are involved with really it really enjoyed that like you, you I, Brandon I, put me onto that I got the Blu-ray copy film. up here on the uh, on the sh- on the shelf it's a it's a terrific it's actually I, for my money it's the best uh, horror fan film ever made I can't, I can't and right here we're we seeing you. Uh, the chair, uh, people busting out of the out of the chest of souls and where's her fucking titties at? They're coming. The miniature work was done really well too. Like, there we, there, we, there go. we go. We love you. Yeah, Linnea, you're you're Not, always Nightmare Sisters on Facebook. You're group. my forever love. Uh, <laughs> Gracie Strangler. Gracie Strangler. I'm glad you got that reference. <laughs> I, I literally just watched that again the uh, night before last. Great movie. Terrific movie. All right, we'll we'll uh, plow through these pretty quick. Uh, from Kevin Corville. Which kill would you consider the most unique of the series? We answered that. Cockroach. Cockroach Hands kill. Uh, it's a unique sense. I mean, it's it's unbeatable. Uh, why didn't Patricia Arquette come back? I know in the Never Sleep Again documentary, Bob Shea mentions her agent got smart and wanted more money, but what do you think is the reason? I I believe it's just that. You know, she, she was going back. It's... Oh, I'm very sorry. How dare you? Brandon leaves his phone on, and I left my alarm <laughs> for my lovely fiancé still on, which that reminds me, I'm going to turn off the other one. Um, I do believe it was that. You know, it was, she wanted more money, probably, and deservedly, and she was coming back to play a character who gets killed. You know, by that time, Patricia Arquette, probably getting a bigger name. I'm not really from... I, I know Patricia Arquette, but I don't know the chronology of her filmography. Well, I mean, she did some bigger roles, but there was a gap there. She was available to do this movie by all accounts. Um, according to the actor who played Joey in discussing discussions he had with her, it all came down to money. And Bob yeah. Shea is n- notorious for... He's a, te- for he's a cheapskate. Cheapskate, so and she... Uh, they could have had her, uh, but they they opted to get an up and comer rather than bring back somebody who. We love you Tuesday money. night. We do love you Tuesday night, and I would very much like to enter your vagine. I want to watch. <laughs> All right, uh, this comes from Jason Davis. He's uh he's our tech support guy here at the podcast. So, admittedly, I'm not as familiar with Freddy as opposed to other slashers, but I've always been confused by why he went after teens and young adults rather than children. Because his backstory involved him killing kids. What's up with that? He the MPAA. <laughs> well, that's that's one reason to look at it. 
But he went after the surviving kids of Elm Street to get revenge on the parents who murdered him. There's actually a deleted scene in the original Nightmare on Elm Street where Nancy's mother is telling her that she, I can't remember if she had a brother or a sister, but she had a, a sibling that Freddie had murdered, and that's why they were so adamant about, you know, getting justice outside of the system because they didn't sign the warrant and all that stuff, and he got released on a technicality. And to follow the logic of the movies... He gets the other souls from Alice, who associates with teenagers, doesn't know a lot of kids, so, you know, he's using her mind to pull them in, you know, there's not going to be kids. That's true. She's the dream master. Read the fucking, what it says on the cover. Read it, damn it. And then, but then you see in Freddy vs. Jason, the real disturbing, like, flashback, they show him killing, they don't show the kills, but they show him with kids. Probably he prefers something younger. That's gross. Okay, I mean it. All right, there, there's a big hard line of people that agree or disagree that Freddie was a child molester. It's never expressly said, but Wes Craven always intended Freddy Krueger was a child molester that's, and killer. That's one reason that I really did enjoy the remake with Jack Earl Haley. It's kind of the same reasons I enjoyed part two. It's nasty. If they would have went one step further with the kitty diddling instead of kitty murder, it's just straight kitty diddling in that movie. I probably would have left. If not left, I'd have been pissed at the movie. It did it just enough to make me squirm and be just nasty and just to really put me in an uncomfortable spot, especially when they find the Polaroid. Jack Earl Haley, which that's not his only chomo role either. Yes, uh, Little Children. Little Children, very disturbing. But he won an Academy Award for was, that. And he deserved it too, but... that And you saw what happened with that movie and the reception of that movie. Because people are wrong and it's a good movie. Alright, these these last three questions okay. are from uh, a gentleman we've had on the podcast before, uh, known, known as Titty Flippin' Travis... Uh, so we'll we'll uh, flash through these and we'll call it a night. Does Freddy have a functional penis? Absolutely. Or does it look like a wiener left on a grill too long and forever es- extra crispy? It's functional, girthy, and not too long. A little well, curved to hit the G spot. Well, obviously it's functional. He uh, he gets Alice pregnant. Yeah. So now that, there's your answer right there. Um, <laughs> if in your dreams does Freddy have a crispy critter or a hot hefty hog? Hot hefty hog. <laughs> I don't know what the fuck the difference is. Whichever is funnier, whichever is the the grosser. That's my answer. Exactly. You sick fuck. And one last question. And and I have a, an extended answer for this, and we'll call it a night. How many wet dreams have you had, and and has Freddy appeared in any of them? I have a quick answer for that. I uh, I have actually, to my memory, had two, and no, Freddy did not show up in either one of them. But weirdly enough, my uh, in the first one, it was my church school teacher that was in it. Now that's kinky. I won't say her name because she was a good woman, but she was overseeing the proceedings in my dream. She, so she was uh, she was a Dorothy on the streets and a Blanche was, on the sheets. Yes, yeah, she was Golden watching. Girls reference. <laughs> Um, do you, okay, do you remember the Josh Hartnett movie? I can't think of what it's called, but, uh, the whole thing is he gave up sex. 40 Days and 40 Nights. Yes. All right. When that movie came out, uh, I was like, well, fuck, it can't be that hard to go this long without. Back in three days, I'll kill someone. Sex or, or yanking it. And, um, let's just put it this way. Uh, after about two weeks, 
I I woke up with enough cum in my bed to drown a toddler. Um, I stopped by while he's sleeping. <laughs> that was that was an awkward uh, that was an awkward moment. I was still living with my parents at the time, so um, those sheets got uh, uh, yanked up pretty quick and thrown into the washer because I did not want to have to have that conversation with uh, what had happened. Well, real talk. The second time I had, we are still in credits, so we're still in movie mode. I wasn't joking when I said down a little prison time. Apparently, my cutoff is thirty-one days. And then in the middle of a hallway in Hamlin County Prison, wake up with the biggest wet spot ever. And apparently you think, oh, God, I'm going to get made fun of. Oh, God, I'm going to have to kill somebody. No, like, no, dude, just go jack off in the shower more, man. No, it, it, it happens. Very understanding people in county jail about wet dreams. Well, and on that note, I think it's about time we say uh, good night. And pleasant dreams. And pleasant dreams. Uh, but one final thing, please follow us on Twitter at Rance Black Lodge and subscribe, subscribe to the podcast at iTunes, Stitcher, Radio, Google Play Music, Spotify, Podbean, Player FM, and of course, track us down on our homepage at JuicyKruger.com. For Fat Tony, this is Brandon A. Lane saying pleasant screams. <laughs>